this episode, Justice League America number 49 and Justice League Europe number 25. Cover dated April 1991. And welcome to the 49th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, we feature two different guest hosts. And once again, this episode, both of our guests are international. Get it? Justice League International? Please try to keep up, people, all right? So we will chat with my second co-host a little bit later. My first co-host, though, is a comic book expert from England. And I brought him here to discuss Justice League America and General Glory. Hmm... Maybe that says something. England. Hmm. All right. Well, our guest has an astonishing memory for comic book trivia and minutiae, and he's really quite impressive. Ironically, though, while he can remember the first comic book appearance of Guy Gardner without any trouble, he is unfortunately unable to remember the names of everyone in his own family. Yikes! Though he did find a loophole. Uh, He made sure the man he married was named after a comic book character. Now that is playing to your strengths. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Damian Drouet Whiter. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Damian. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? <laughs> what the folks at home don't know is how many takes it took me to get that last bit right. Either regardless, David, I'm so glad you're here. It's been years that we have been chatting through the Fire and Water Network message board, but we've never spoken. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to be in New York. My first time ever in the US of A. Well, I will be sure to get you a tour and show you all the important sites, you know, the grimy alleys, the stinky sewers, and uh, all the homeless people. So it'll be sure to show you around. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> so tell me about this. So you can't remember your own family members' names, and yet you managed to, as I said, find a loophole, and your husband is named after a comic book character. Is that right? Yes, yes. After a very famous French comic book called, and I'm going to attempt to say this in French, the comic is called Irigel ou la Femme des Tombes by Philippe Droulet and Michel Demuth, and he's called Irigel. It's a very famous comic from the late 60s in France. So yeah, I've got a comic book husband. How lucky am I? That's amazing. That's like marrying someone named Kal-El over here, I take it, right? Yeah, pretty much. Or it's probably more like marrying somebody called Superman, to be honest. Okay. Wow. I know. But yeah, he's really famous throughout France. Everybody knows the name because like Droulet is kind of the second person to Mobius and he used to work in the same studio. So I always compare him for people where his work isn't much in English. He's like, if Mobius is Bernie Wrightson, then he's Mike Luther. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's really big name. Everybody's heard of Irigel, but he is one of the few Irigels. There's not many of them. And they're all from the early 70s. And so you've been introducing your husband to English superhero comic books, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. English language. Been going through, we've got our own podcast called Should I Love This Comic? And I'm getting him to read comics that I love from the 80s and 90s, mainly. And we've already skirted on the Justice League. We did do an issue of Doc Fate in one of the earliest episodes. He's still speaking to you. So that means there's some kind of victory going on with the comic yeah, book conversion. Yeah, he's loving them so far. Our most recent one, we haven't, I haven't finished editing it yet. But it was an issue of Thor by Walt Simonson and Salvi Shema. So obviously he's going to still love you. I mean, if you do a story with Thor and frogs in it, <laughs> you know, any marriage is going to get on really well with Thor and frogs. <laughs> 
I'm not sure my marriage would survive if I made my wife read a comic book, but I, uh, I'm thrilled that it's working for you, and that's fantastic. So awesome. Yeah. Again, so folks, if you don't know Damien, in our comment section, whenever we do a deep dive on some sort of topic from like maybe in the 90s, Damien is the one who's going to write a giant uh, response that's like massive. <laughs> it's huge, right? How It's almost yeah. frank level. However, it's actually interesting. And it goes in and tells you all this detail of you know how they promoted it, what they changed between the time they announced it and what was actually released and who knows who behind the scenes. I mean, it's amazing the amount of comic book information you either know off the top of your head or know where to find. It's it's absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it is. there's just something going on in my brain where this kind of information, it gets in there and it sticks there. And it just always has been like that. I just love it and I find it so fascinating. And, you know, suddenly going, oh, you know, no wonder that person moved from that comic to that comic because the editor of that used to be the assistant editor of that one. And I don't know why. I just, it just really fascinates me, all the behind the scenes stuff, as much as the stories and the art themselves. Well, it's been incredibly useful in our Who's Who podcast. A number of times, you know, we just speculate what may have been going on and then you've got the real deal. Or once in a while, you might not. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a very, very big error recently. <laughs> and I've been able to identify where it came from. There was a reference in a Swamp Thing letter column to Nancy A. Collins' husband. And it came out the same time as an issue of Who's Who. And for some reason in my brain, I put the two wrong people together. But I read those two two things on the same day. And in my brain, it was the same thing. And the fact that I was wrong, I was wrong for 30 years. <laughs> You know, once it's in there, it's not coming out. Well, we typically treat Damien's uh, feedback as factual information. So for now on, Nancy Collins is married to the wrong man. So there we go. <laughs> well, in fairness, the man she was married to apparently was awful and treated her really badly. So I wish she had been married to someone else. But... There we go. See? Problem solved. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we should probably start getting into this, folks, because uh, we need to thank our sponsors before we can talk about the comic book. So this episode is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the in-stock trades library. Usually, it's tied into the month's issue in some way, shape, or form. I picked Captain America Trade Paperback Adventures of Captain America. Now, this includes two different miniseries. It includes The Adventures of Captain America, and includes Captain America in the 1940s newspaper strip. Now, the reason, besides the fact that, obviously, the parallels between General Glory and Captain America, another reason this is important is that The Adventures of Captain America, the first two issues were drawn by Kevin McGuire. Absolutely beautiful stuff. He started on the third issue, didn't get a chance to finish it, so Kevin West had to finish it up. But The Adventures of Captain America by uh, the Kevin McGuire stuff is stunning. I mean, the whole miniseries is wonderful. Uh, and this also, again, includes the newspaper stretch, which is so you get Fabian Nicieza and Carl Kessel doing the writing. Again, on art, you got Kevin McGuire, Kevin West, and Carl Kiesel. Great stuff. Covered by Kevin McGuire. 304 pages. It is a boatload of fun reading this thing. Is soft cover normally retails for thirty four ninety nine, but you can get it for thirty eight percent off. So it's only twenty one dollars and sixty nine cents. Uh, heck of a deal! Great story. And again, Kevin McGuire and you know Captain America—that's a complete win. So Damien, this is the part where I ask if the guest has bothered to bring something. You do typically prepare a lot of information, so I'm going to assume you have one. If not, you're never going to live this down. I have definitely picked one, and Woo-hoo. I've gone for Superman: The Man of Steel hardcover volume four. So um, this one—it's the 
last part of when John Byrne was on Superman back in mm. the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's written by John Byrne, Paul Kupperberg, Jerry Ordway and Roger Stern. So that's a good list. Mm-hmm. And the artists include John Byrne, Jerry Ordway, Carl Kessel again, John Beatty and many others. Wow. And it has a cover that's penciled by John Byrne and inked by the late, great George Perez. Oh. Collects Doom Patrol number 10, Superman 1622, Adventures of Superman 439 to 444, and Action Comic 598 to 600, and Superman Annual 2. It's 520 pages. Absolutely massive, this thing. Normally the price is $49.99 and the in-stock trades price is $28.99. So that's 42% off. An absolutely amazing deal. I want this comic book myself. I don't (laughs) have it. I've got almost all of the issues that are in there. I'm actually missing the Superman annual because it was almost impossible to get annuals in the UK back then. But I've got all the others. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I picked it is for Action Comics 600, which is everybody from the 1980s knows that was the last issue ever of Action Comics because it was going to become Action Comics Weekly. Oh, right. Right. And Action 600 was my first special issue while I was DC Comics fan. And it was the first giant size with all the extras and guest artists and stuff. And one of the things in there is a pinup by an artist called Linda Medley. <gasps> oh, which wow. Which features the Justice League International kind of mixed with the old style Justice League America. And it's just a beautiful image. And I think that's worth the money entirely. I'm actually looking at it now, the image. And I to find it, talking of what you were talking about earlier, I actually ended up on the idle head of Diablo uh, <laughs> blog. That was where I found this picture because, you know, who else would know about this other than me and Frank? <laughs> well, you know? this is Linda Medley and Art Adams together. Yeah, inked by Art Adams. What a combination. It's just amazing. You know, it's got a fantastic Superman with the great big jaw that you used to get from from Jerry Ordway, mm-hmm. but it's got Blue Beetle and Booster Gold and Martian Manhunter and Doctor Fate, the most charming Wonder Woman, Mister Miracles in there, Firestorm. Yeah, whoop, whoop. I thought I'd get a reaction from that. No, oh, you did. And it's beautiful. I mean. Black Canary is wearing the Jazzercise outfit. We've got Jason Todd Robin in there. Right. So in that era, it is the most fantastic thing. And it's got a smiling Batman. I love it. This is worth... (laughs) This is worth, you know, less than $30 by itself. You know, that one pinup. And that book is amazing. Action 600. If you haven't read it, find it. Buy this. You know, you will have a good time. There's stories in there by Mike Mignola. There's a pinup by Kevin Maguire. It's phenomenal stuff. You have to get it. This pinup's interesting because this is essentially the lineup of Justice League International around issue six. Because yeah. uh, if you throw the creeper in there, right? It, it's yeah. J, it's JLI issue six, but added Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and Firestorm, which is, and is Robin. oh, and Robin, right, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. which is a strange. Like, I get Superman, Wonder Woman, totally makes sense. Flash, again, a pretty pretty high character, but Robin and Firestorm, those are weird picks to add in there. I'm glad they did. Uh, and again, Lindell Medley with Art Adams, as we've been saying throughout this whole run on uh, the Journal Glory stuff. Linda Medley is a fantastic penciler, and when she has the right inker it's gorgeous when she has the wrong inker it doesn't work but uh art adams is never ever the wrong inker yeah yeah definitely 
And obviously at this point in time, he would have been inking the Superboy comic book, couldn't he? He did an issue of that when Di Debson had to take a month off. Oh, wow. Okay, I did not remember Which that. Which is why he would have been in with the Superman people. So sad that I know stuff like that. I was going to say, see the command of insanely detailed information that none of us would remember. <laughs> I know. It's terrible, really. I should go and hang my head in shame. No, not at well, that We're going to talk about heads hang, hung in shame in just a moment here, but save that for a minute because, uh, folks, remember, you can get these trade paperbacks and more at our sponsor, InStockTrades.com. This episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and, and other services and fees. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses. So we launched a Patreon and you folks really stepped up to help us keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash podcast. And please consider supporting the network while you're there. And at certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on the show of your choice. Just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. Our thanks go out to Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Coos, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zemkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks, now I need you to get out there on the social media. I need you to be part of this conversation. You know, go out there, tag us on Twitter as JLI Podcast. We're on Facebook as Just League International Blahaha Podcast. You can use our hashtag, pound FW Podcast. Regardless, we need you to be part of the conversation. Talking about General Glory, I want to hear your discussions about Just League Europe number 25, where we're talking about Crimson Fox. I want you to be part of the discussion because it is all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Speaking of JLI fans around the show, Damien, this is your moment. This is where I need to find out what is your origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book and what made you fall in love with it? I mean, my origin with the JLI is my origin with DC Comics. Oh, wow. I have to start by te- giving a little bit of scene setting about finding US comics in Britain. They weren't everywhere. British right. comics were everywhere. You can always get comics in Britain. You could always get 2008 AD. Back in the 80s, you could always get Marvel UK. But there were only certain news agents, certain places where you could get American comics. And I discovered in about 86 that I could get US Marvels at a particular news agents in the center of town where I live. And I started going there and buying my American comics every month. And then one day I went in there in 1988. And for the first time ever, they had DC comics. Mm. And what they had is they had pretty much the entire Millennium crossover. (laughs) I presume they got one of everything and somebody else got in there before me. Because there was no issue one of Millennium. But I got issues two to eight. And I picked up every Millennium crossover I saw that was there in one day. And luckily, this day was Easter Monday. And this year, probably because I was slightly overweight, my parents had decided to give me money instead of chocolate for Easter. (laughs) So I was walking in there with loads of money looking for comics. And I mean, comics were 40p each. You could get lots of comics for nothing. Mm -hmm. And I picked up everything. And in that pile was Justice League International issues 9 and 10, the two millennium crossovers. Now, I can't be sure because of how long ago it was and the fact that I read all those comics on that single day. But if I read them in order, according to the weeks of Millennium, the only week one issue I had was JLI number nine. Mm. So it could well be the first DC comic I ever read. And I just loved it. 
Now, that news agents then immediately started getting DC Comics every month. And the next month, these had actually turned up later than they normally would. I got JLI number 13. Mm. From there, I read all the way through. All the way through the entire JLI era. Loved it. Loved it all. For all the spin-offs, Mr. Miracle, Dot Fate. Loved everything. And I just, it got me on that first issue and I never let go. That's a great era to come in. I mean, regardless of Millennium and here, neither here nor there, but the crossovers for Millennium from the JLI were absolutely fantastic. So, mm. oh, such a good, good time to come and in. what a time to discover DC. You know, right? in that pile, there's an Adventures of Superman drawn by Jerry Ordway. You know, one of them was a Teen Titan Spotlight drawn by Colleen Duran, whose work I love. One of my favorite comics artists. You know, people I'd never seen before. And it was like comics opened up. It was just wonderful for me. I loved it. I, I have often said that 1987 is my single favorite year in mm-hmm. comics because there's just so many amazing things launched that year. But 88 yeah. is equally as good because all those things that launched in 87 were continuing into 88. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. fact, that some of them, you know, many of them were getting better because they had, you mm-hmm. know, found their footing. So it, it, that's an amazing period to get into yeah. the comics. So, oh. And I mean, the fact then that the first regular issue of JLI that I got that came out, I got it the same month. I think they were just testing the water. They got, oh, we got loads of fair millennium. Stick it in the shop. If they buy it, we'll start sending them DC as well as Marvel. And so the next month was issue 13. So that's the Suicide Crossover. Suicide Crossover. So instantly I've got Suicide Squad as well. And that was like a bomb going off in your head. It was so different to the Marvel comics. It was just an amazing time to be a fan. And then like within a year or two, you're seeing Sandman, you're seeing Mm -hmm. Shape the Changing. You know, the world was huge for comics back then, it felt like. And I know it is now, but... I don't know, it felt easier to get into back then. Well, I also, I, I got to say, I, there's a number of reasons. One is, you know, availability. They were out there. Mm. They were cheap. We could afford them. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was all interconnected. The DC universe was exploding and growing at that point, so there was a lot of synergy. And there's also the fact of our age. I mean, they, you know, they always say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they attribute the line to Jack Kirby, what's the greatest age of comics? Well, it's whatever you were when you were 12 years old. Well, I was 12 in 1988. So there you go. Exactly right. No, I wasn't. I was 14 in 1988. I'm a liar. So so math is not your strong point. Good to know. Names uh, and math. Names and math. Yes, names and math. <laughs> I right. know who the assistant editor was. Anyway. Right. Well, let's get back to you hanging your head in shame, which is going to lead us right to the cover of this comic. So, folks, go out on our website. If you don't have your copy of Justice League America number 49 handy, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, you can go out to our website to see some of the images from this issue, including this cover, which we're about to talk about. So, uh, this is Justice League America number 49, published by DC Comics, cover dated April. 1991 on the shelves February 12th 1991 cover price is $1 at least in the US sounds like it was 40p in Britain not sure oh I think it had gone up by then okay sorry it was 50 pence there we go okay and uh, the cover here is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story Uh, would you like to describe it for us Damien Uh, I mean it's stunning it's incredibly moody it's general glory sitting forlorn in a prison cell with his mask in his hand and you can see the Justice League outside the prison window looking in on him it is beautiful and I kept making the references to hanging your head in shame because that is what is happening here. General mm. Glory has his head down. He's got his cowl off and he just looks uh, so downtrodden. He looks so dejected. Mm. And uh, it's a, and the way the lighting hits him in the face, it's so powerful. It, I mean, it is beautiful. I think the best thing about it is the colors, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. It's mentioned inside on the left page. It's colored by Bob LaRose, who obviously was the cover editor for DC. But it just, the way the colors have been used really does draw your attention to him and makes him look different 
to yeah. everything else in the cover. He's in a dark place. Yeah. And you can't see his face. I mean, the, like his hair mm. is hanging over his eyes in a very 90s way. Well, I have to mention with this, I showed this cover to my husband earlier. We both had the same reaction. There is something about a floppy haired boy in 1991 that you won't understand this, Shag, but oh my gosh. very important. When this was released, I was 16. There is something about that floppy hair. Think Keanu Reeves. It, you just can't get over it. <laughs> this is special. There is something about a sad boy who needs comforting Aww. that really gets you. It gets you back then. And it still gets me now. I have to say, uh, when you first got into reading comics in 88, so not quite when this cover came out, but earlier that, ah. I had floppy hair. I had ah. uh, my bangs actually came down and went past my chin. That's how long my bangs were. Uh, yeah, I had one of those asymmetrical haircuts back then. But um, so I understand. I understand the, the power of, of bangs. I truly do. <laughs> the power of the floppy hair. It's, yes. It really was. I mean, particularly as someone who has hair that now naturally likes to stand up. I could never recreate that look. I was never going to be like the boys in the magazine. And General Glory was. And, you know, I know it's a cliche to say it on this podcast, but he looks hot in that picture. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the outfit fits in all the right places. I mean, that Adam mm. Hughes knows how to draw both sexy men and women, without a doubt. Yes, yes. And he did get a bit of fire in there as well, just for yep, you. Yep, a little bit of cleavage even. So, again, yeah, yeah. it's fair to say the cover's evocative of what happens yeah, without right. actually reproducing a panel. Because in this case, the JLA are outside the window of his jail cell, looking in, feeling sorry for him. That doesn't actually happen, but it definitely conveys the essence of that. Mm. Uh, and this is the first time we've seen General Glory without his mask on. So we, we're sitting here talking about the hair and everything, but we should acknowledge we've never seen him without the mask off, so this is the first time. Oh, and yeah, of course. Uh, two more things worth mentioning. One, and, and, and this all, both these items came to me while we were prepping here, getting ready to, to start recording. First off, I didn't notice until now the, the scum in the sink, because uh, he's in a prison cell, so it's kind of filthy. The scum in the sink are actually Adam Hughes and Carl Story's initials. That's clever. Well, you know, they know their place. Yeah. <laughs> and the other is uh, a bit of perspective. Realizing now he's like six foot, I don't know, three or four or whatever. There's no way his uh, feet are going to make it on that cot. And when he lays on that cot, he's like, he's going to just, it's going to end at his knees. His feet are going to be dangling in the toilet. Yeah, his feet are going to be in that toilet. Definitely. Yep. <laughs> That's why he looks so sad. He's got that feet. <laughs> Worried about trench foot, you know. Oh it's, it's a real issue. <laughs> All right, let's get it. Let's get into this here. So once you open it up, the plot and breakdowns are by Keith Kiffin. Now, these are the terms used in the opening credits: script and kibitzing by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler is Linda Medley. Inker's John Beatty. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Halls of Montezuma Dooley. And editor is Andy Montezuma's Revenge Helfer. The issue itself is called Glory and Shame. There's that shame again we keep talking about. You mm. want to start us off, Damien? Yes. Can it be true? Is Uncle Sam's favorite son a want felon? The feds think so. They want to arrest him for unspecified war crime. Gardner is furious. As far as he's concerned, the Allies only won the war because of the general. Glory protests. This, that's a slight exaggeration, son. I certainly did my share to stop the tyrants who would enslave us, but so did a lot of other freedom-loving guys and gals. John is more concerned that the war crimes are unspecified, but the agents explain that he was allegedly responsible for the destruction of a prisoner of war camp. 
Watching through the destroyed Uber box, Schmidt is even angrier than Guy. Why should General Glory get the credit for his crime? He has only one solution. The evil eye. <laughs> Glory is going to leave with the feds when Guy plucks him into the air. Guy knows he would be a better partner than Ernie ever was, but Glory won't go with Guy. I appreciate what you're trying to do, Guy, but it's wrong. This is America, son, where the scales of justice are more finely balanced than anywhere in the world, where no man need fear wrongful imprisonment. Glory manages to break out of Guy's bubble and starts plummeting to the ground. This is obviously no problem for America's greatest hero. He's able to continue his anecdote as he falls, safe in the knowledge that he can angle his body to catch an air current, grab a flagpole and spin to the ground unharmed. In fact, he's almost disheartened when Light Ray catches him before he can save himself. Guy blasts Light Ray, so an enraged Orion joins the melee. John wants fire to separate them before it gets any worse, but it always gets worse. <laughs> Shiloh describes the scene as being like a less highbrow, the Three Stooges, but General Glory can use the brawl to give himself up while Guy is occupied. And we see the Daily Planet declares General Glory the shame of a nation. Schmidt watches this on the news and filled with hatred makes his way to the basement. Well, I'll take it from there. Next, we see exploding from underground. Schmidt has launched the evil eye into the air. It's revealed to be a spherical flying Nazi warship comparable in size to Beetle's bug. Now, in liberating the device, Schmidt has unfortunately also destroyed the retired Nazi bunker. Well, maybe not unfortunately, but... Then back at the JLA Embassy, the 1940s cartoonist for the General Glory comics reveals that the General's final mission was kept a secret. That somewhere is the unpublished issue of the General Glory comic that would clear the General's name. We find General Glory is being held in a military prison. At the facility is the General's former CBI chief, Newkirk Sharp, as well as Major Ernest, who's formerly Ernie the Battling Boy. Both are very resentful towards General Glory for his betrayal of his country and betraying them. Chief Sharp manipulates Major Ernest, telling him that if someone were to just simply kill General Glory, it would save a bunch of unnecessary trials and frustration. Major Ernest confronts General Glory, and the General is thrilled to see his old friend Ernie again. Ernie threatens to kill the General for being a traitor, but can't bring himself to pull the trigger. General Glory taught Ernie too well to know right from wrong. About this time, the JLI arrived to get to the bottom of the General Glory mystery. Traveling with the JLI are the 1940s General Glory comic book cartoonist, Shiloh the New Mr. Miracle, and General Glory's dog named Liberty. As the cartoonist is about to reveal to Major Ernest why General Glory is not a traitor, there's an enormous explosion. Through a massive hole in the jail cell wall, our heroes see the floating Nazi evil eye threatening to murder all of them. Next issue, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as our General Glory saga concludes in a double-sized 50th issue. And then it says, ha, they said we wouldn't last. Come to think of it, we said we wouldn't last. <laughs> All right. So, Damien, what would you think of this issue, man? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And for me, I've got to say this is the first time since I got this comic that I've read it in isolation. And there's something I didn't mention about it before when we were talking, but this is one of the first comic books I ever got from a comic book store hmm. rather than from a newsagent. And one thing you may not know, in the UK, we were three months behind on our newsstand. Okay. So what you got at the newsagents was three months behind. So the first time you go to a comic shop, you can buy three new comics in one go. Ah. And I got issues 47, 48 and 49 all on one day, brought them together. 
and read them as a single piece. Wow. Okay. And it's really interesting to go back to this and read it just by itself, to actually look at one bit and how satisfying it is as a single issue. You know, that it has a beginning, middle and end, that everything's advancing, but it also works by itself. And I've really enjoyed it, actually, much more than I thought I did. You know, as we've been going through these General Glory issues, it's been the same for me. I, I've i mentioned on every episode that, you know, there is a general sense among the JLI fans that the General Glory series uh, was, you know, the jumping the shark or it wasn't very good or, it you know, there's a lot of negative feelings towards the this run. Now, four issues in, I'm still loving it. This is great. Yeah. This is absolutely super fun comics. I mean, General Glory, while he's completely saccharine, it's not in a way that irritates you is the reader you can't help but like the guy i mean he's genuinely someone that you feel you enjoy and you want to read more about he's not you know annoying like uh i guess the perception is i, I don't know do you feel the same way as you're going through all this definitely definitely i feel the uh, general glory himself actually comes out as a great character and you actually like him and he he's usually right in a yeah. way and when he's wrong, he's wrong in a very funny way. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's saying, oh, yeah, nobody's ever been badly treated by the American court. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly being presented to you in a way that you're meant to know. Mm-hmm. You're meant to know. So I do wonder, you know, we talked before about how the golden age of comics is being 12. You know, is part of the problem. This story is about being older. It's about mm. remembering the past. It's about nostalgia. Are we enjoying it more because we're in our forty? That could be the case. And because we were in, you know, when I first read this, I was sixteen. As I said, you know, do yeah. I like this more because I'm now forty-eight and I get what it's like to feel like some of the best days were in the past. That's a very interesting thought, you know, because one of one of my thoughts uh, in reading this was how much I was enjoying seeing the majority of the sporting cast are geriatrics in the story. Yeah. General Glory, yeah. Schmidt, Joe Mason, Newkirk, Sharp, you know, all of them are old and gray, you know, and it may resonate more now with us as adults. That's possible. I mean, J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen, they were a lot older than us. I mean, I, I don't know if they were in their they, 40s at this point. they still probably would have been younger than we are now. Yeah, I think they're, well, I, my age is still undisclosed because I'm only 29, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, right. remember, you are on record that you bought Just League Europe number one new. Well, I just admitted that I had floppy hair in 1998 as well. Or 19, exactly. I'm sorry, in 1988. 1988, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you must have been alive at least then. <laughs> either way. Born with a full head of hair, I guess. Uh, either way, I, uh, it, it may be that it's resonating more with us now. I'm not sure. Either way, it's it. You know, here we stand all these years later in a lot of comics that are this old don't hold up nearly as well. So props to the creative team to keep such an interesting book. Yeah. You know, I think some of it as well, and I I think some of the reason it's badly thought of is that it's not drawn by Kevin Maguire or Mm. Ty Templeton or Adam Hughes. Yeah. And I definitely remember at the time, you know, we talk about how I used to read fanzines and magazines, and I remember things that I've read from them. And I remember seeing letters in fanzines going, why are they giving the top comics to women? You know, there was a certain amount. There was stuff coming out. I mean, more so a year or so later when they're starting to put Jill Thompson on Sandman. You've got Jan Tassima doing some X Factor. Mm -hmm. There was a real sort of this kind of reaction from people that like, why are we looking at women artists? You know, Mm. and I think that has influenced it as well. You know, the fact that she isn't 
remembered in the way that those other artists are, even though a lot of what she's doing here is phenomenal. Well, I'm going to address the first part and then let's talk about the art. The first part is I just want to say I am really glad I was ignorant of some of the toxic areas of fandom back then. Because that would have just put me off of a lot of things, just hearing people say that kind of nonsense. Even back then. Uh, I mean, I wasn't yeah. the most enlightened person, that's for sure, uh, back then. But even I would have recognized that that was just mm. stupid. I mean, in fairness, most of what I saw was people writing in saying they can't believe that people are saying. Okay. You know, yeah. there weren't that many people who were actually like, don't give the comments to women who were standing above, putting their heads above parapet. Ugh. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about the art because I think this issue is a good example of why people like Linda Medley and why some people don't. Um, I, I've got some specific examples I wanted to point out. And folks yeah. at home, you can go to the gallery if you want to see these. But I actually wonder if there's multiple – even though John Beatty's the only one listed as the inker in this issue, I wonder if there actually were multiple inkers because Linda Medley has this very cartoony style. And when I say cartoony, I mean that in a, as a complimentary way. So she's a cartoonist, mm. right? When she's inked by someone using thicker lines, her work is glorious. I mean, pun intended. But it, it's, it's really, really exceptional. When she's inked by someone – with thinner lines, it really loses a lot of its life. So if you look at, I'm just going to rattle out some pages for you here, Damien, if you can flip with me here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've got the comic here. Yeah, pages one, four, or nine, any of those would work. But the lines on those pages are fairly thin. Um, okay. And so some of the art doesn't really stand out, especially Guy Gardner looks a little bit, you know, not, mm. not my favorite. But then if you jump over to just something like pages two and three, or 18 and 19, there's really nice, thick lines, great use of shadowings are really strong, and the mm. art looks amazing. Amazing. And it's it's such a contrast that which makes me wonder if uh, either they were inked maybe out of order and he used a different kind of pen on each one, or if there were multiple inkers. Because again, her work with the right inking, like page eighteen, is one of my favorites. It's it's mm. just a simple page of General Glory with his mask off having a conversation with Ernie as an adult, and it just looked the line work is great, the facial expressions look great. It's beautiful. I mean, for me, I don't think there's multiple inkers here. I think this is all John Beatty or John okay. Beatty. I'm never quite sure if it's Beatty or Beatty. It's like Warren Beatty, isn't it? Or Beatty? I think it's uh, I think it's Beatty. Beatty. Okay. I think he's an inker who does his best work where there's a lot of high contrast black and white, you know, where it's not thin lines. As you say, it's big, bold, black. You think about that running head with Kelly Jones on Batman. Mm -hmm. You know, that looked absolutely breathtaking. And I think he does his best work when he's given that. And I think the thing is, because Linda Medley was an inexperienced penciler, on some of the pages, maybe she's not putting blacks in. And he is being paid as an inker. He's not being paid as a finisher. True. And I don't think he redraws or changes much unless he's after it. And I think you can see this in other jobs that he's done over the years. I think if you look at um, Secret Wars, when he did that, mm -hmm. and some of that was really done under deadline pressure. Right, right. But from page to page, it would go from very, very detailed to very, very basic thin lines. And I think it's about what he's given in pencils. Yeah. And I think that will be the difference. I don't think it's a different inker coming. I think it's the fact that you've got an inexperienced artist. It could also be, you know, and this is purely speculative. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to say. Maybe she was turning in pages, you know, at the last minute towards the end, didn't turn them all in at once. And, and he was just under a time crunch on certain pages. It could be that too. I don't know. Mm. And I mean, definitely he does his best work on moody stuff. He always has. Yeah. Which is odd because actually in some ways he's got very clean stuff. And you think, oh, if you're clean, you do superhero battles better than 
moodiness Mm -hmm. but his moody stuff is always the best and maybe there's that thing of he just liked those pages more so he put a bit more into them yeah you know i think that can happen with the creative person you know they the bit they get excited about they do so much more of yeah that's very true but i think it is inconsistent i would put that down to the fact that ultimately this run of issues is linda medley's first time drawing a monthly book you know she's done a few fill-ins yeah She's done great pinups. She's done stuff for who's who. But here she's doing 22 pages a month for, what, five months in a row, is it? Yeah, five months. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of work for someone who's new. That's true. That's and true. to turn out things that are as consistent as this is, is amazing. It's a real you tribute know? to her. Yeah. Exactly. But I wouldn't be that surprised there's a bit of inconsistency, you know. Now, some of it's going to come from the breakdowns, because, you know, Keith Giffen mm. did the breakdowns for these books. Like, there's one page in particular I want to talk about that I think is just absolutely yeah. brilliant. And I'm going to assume it came from Giffen's breakdowns that, you know, I I can't promise you that, but it's page four and it's Mm. six panels, three across the top and three across the bottom. And I didn't catch it at first because I read this in panel by panel mode over on the DC Universe uh, Infinite. But once it moved out to full page, I'm like, wait a minute. So what you've got is an amazing layout here of parallels. So it's in the in the top half of the page, it's Schmidt arguing with his Nazi cohorts. In the bottom half of the page, it's Guy Gardner arguing with his Justice League International cohorts. And so the panels are perfectly parallel. So the top right-hand panel and the bottom left-hand panel, so catty corner from each other, both are close-ups of one of them Schmidt, one of them's Guy Gardner, both looking towards the center of the page. Then you go to the opposite corner panel, so top left, bottom right, it's Schmidt and Guy Gardner being frustrated. Uh, they're facing the camera. They've got an authority figure behind them. And uh, they're both, again, turned towards the center of the page. And finally, the two middle panels are both Schmidt and Garter ranting and raving with their arms flailing and the authority figure sort of talking them down. I mean, it's really brilliantly laid out. I must say, this is brilliant. And I feel like a bit of a doofus for not noticing it until I read your notes. Well, that's because I'm really, really, really smart. Well, clearly, clearly, <laughs> I should have known this. But uh, no, it is it's really clever and it's so subtle, but you just get it. And I love this idea of juxtaposing Schmidt and Guy. Mm. They're both people who are annoyed by General Glory for different reasons but they're actually acting in very similar ways. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I, it's just so clever. Yeah. There's so much of this comic is great. You know, art, writing. I mean, part of the reason I think this does so well is it really suits what James and Mateus is best at. You know, it's all about the dialogue all the way through. The situations are setting up characters against each other, and that gives you room to play. I think it's wonderful. It really does play to all their strengths. I mean, beyond the dialogue, mm. as you said, but also their love of the Golden Age stuff, the the love of mm. comedy. It, it, it's a wonderful melding of all these things, and it just makes a really enjoyable, fun comic. And again, I know there's complaints that, you know, too much of the story is about General Glory, but you know what? That's okay. He's, he eventually becomes part of the team, so it's about a Justice League member, uh, and they're just introducing a new member to the team, and there's nothing wrong with that. You see, that I actually think is part of why people are slightly down on the General Glory story. Okay. Because I don't think he did very much once he became a member of the team. Okay. So I, that, for me, is part of the weakness of General Glory, is that they did all this great story to bring him in, 
and then they did breakdowns and it was like oh why did you bother hmm. so maybe that's part of the coloring that people get of it that they're like why did we bother getting to know general glory for him to go away you know they do have a history of certain characters sitting on the sidelines with this book you know a good example and this is orion and light ray i mean they both orion and light ray get a little bit to do in this issue not a lot you know orion yeah. fights with guy gardner and light ray tries to save general glory but for the most part orion and light ray don't do much in their tenure with the team. So maybe, and I, and I don't remember, I've got, you know, what, uh, another 12 issues left or so uh, to find out how much General Glory does on the team. So uh, I'll have to watch for that. My memory is it wasn't very much, but, you know, it's 30 years old. I mean, one thing that's noticeable about Orion and Light Ray, just before we started this uh, conversation, I was reading the letters page, mm-hmm. and they actually try to get people to pick up the New Gods book, which is on its last like four issues. Mm-hmm. And you do wonder if there is an element of those characters being put in there to try and get people to buy a failing book. Oh, yeah. Because we're at the point now where Paris Cullens has left. And New Gods is really not doing well, I don't think. Right, right. Well, they so, took uh, they took Scott Free out for his own book, and so they felt yeah. like they had to keep some New Gods characters in here, so they gave us uh, Light Ray and Orion, and now they're bringing Shiloh in to help support the Mr. Miracle book. So yeah, it could be that there's some behind the scenes trying to support other books because Justice League was so yeah. popular. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was top 10 all the time, wasn't it? Yeah. But no, I mean, they are wonderful in the scene. Uh, the fight scene between Guy... And Orion and Light Ray is delightful. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of scrapping like toddlers with biting. There's hair pulling later on once fire gets involved. It's just, I don't know. I, I love them being toddlers. Well, it's, it's interesting. It, the first time I reread this issue, getting ready for this episode, and just so you guys know, when you're doing a podcast, you end up reading the comic like three or four times uh, because yeah. you, you like you read it the first time, then you come back, you read it a second time, you start to make your notes, then you got to do the recaps. I mean, you read these things many times. So you really pick up on it. It kind of sucks the joy out of it a little bit. But uh, I, the first time I read through it, I did feel like the fight went a little too long. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know why I felt that way, because I don't now. Upon the second read, that feeling was gone completely, because it's only, what, five pages, right? It's one, two, yeah, I can count, folks. Three, four, five, yeah. It's I'm the- counting along at the same time, but yeah, the- no, I'm bad at that. So we've already <laughs> established this. Yeah, so the fight's <laughs> only five pages long, but the first time I read it, it felt a lot longer. So I, it's just a perception thing, you know, the way, the way things actually happen versus the way you think they do. So the fight is not that long at all, uh, and it is very entertaining. So what's happening here is General Glory is being arrested by the feds, right? And Guy Gardner decides, oh, no, you're not taking my hero. So Guy Gardner literally captures General Glory and takes him away. And the whole time, General Glory's like, stop it. Put me down. I'm fine going with these government agents. Stop it. And so General Glory keeps getting, trying to get back to the ground. Guy keeps trying to capture him. Light Ray tries to rescue General Glory after he starts to plummet. There's this great bit where General Glory's plummeting at least 20 stories. He, he is literally falling to his death. And the whole time, he's just speechifying. You know, he's just talking about the judicial system and being proven innocent all this stuff and Guy Gardner's like you're gonna die he's like no I'm gonna be fine and then Light Ray goes to rescue him and he's like what are you doing I don't need rescuing I was gonna grab a flagpole and spin my way down and do a perfect landing I mean it's hilarious all this bit about how he is your typical comic book person who can somehow fit you know like an hour's worth of exposition in the 30 second fall and uh it's, it's hilarious yeah, it is. And, you know, the Orion and Light Ray of it as well, the way that they get involved because of each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that 
the reason Orion attacks Guy Gardner is because he attacked Light Ray. Right. And then what calms him down is Light Ray going, no, he's looking after his comrade. You know, he's it's like being on Apocalypse where you look after your team, you know. Right. There is great characterization in there, actually. I think that's what makes it. It's not just silliness for the sake of silliness. There's a reason for it all. Which is interesting because you really don't see Orion and Light Ray, other than both being on the team at the same time, you don't really see them as partners too often. And you're right here, it does demonstrate mm-hmm. how they get each other and they support each other. Now, in yeah. that same exchange, there's unfortunately, Guy Gardner makes some pretty nasty, uh, like homophobic and even transphobic mm-hmm. sort of comments about Light Ray, which, you know, in, in past episodes, I did say it was kind of funny when, and, and I'll fully own this. I thought it was kind of funny when Guy Gardner was throwing a bunch of evil nicknames around and he called Light Ray Swish Ray. I thought that was kind of funny. Not that it's mm-hmm. polite, but it's the type of thing when you know these kinds of jerks, uh, Guy Gardner, uh, and, and we all know him in real life, right? And that's the kind of thing they would say. So and I, it is exactly what an arsehole would say. Exactly. And if Guy Gardner does say what an arsehole would say, you're not got Guy Gardner right, I don't think. So uh, I, I want to acknowledge that it's uncomfortable reading it now, but it also feels appropriate for the era for yeah. what, as you said, an asshole would say. So absolutely. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is wonderful. And I'm looking at that page now and just noticing how beautiful Shiloh Norman was. He really <laughs> was beautifully drawn. Um, yes, Joe Phillips knew what he was doing when he redesigned that character. Sorry, just getting that in there. He's hot. No, that's fine. He's a handsome fella. So He really is. Now, just want to give props to Joe Phillips. Uh, folks, Joe actually appeared on an episode of this show mm. a year or two ago when we covered the Mr. Miracle special. Had a chance to talk to him about that issue and his art career and you know some of the directions mm. that he took it. So, yeah, uh, as you said, he knew what he was doing when he drew Shiloh. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. And um, Linda Medley knew how to follow his lead. Yeah, yep. So speaking of cartoonists, you know, in art style, let's talk about Joe Mason here, right? The 1940s cartoonist of the General yes. Glory comic. He's introduced here, and I, I'll, I'll say my note. I've already, guys, I've already read Damien's notes, and you have mm. a total insightful thing that I didn't see. But let me let me say my yeah. bit, and then you take it from there, buddy, which is Joe Mason is clearly here to represent the artist side of that comic book. So in, in essence, he's sort of a stand-in for Jack Kirby. Not physically, though. He doesn't look like Jack Kirby. He's just no. symbolically. And there's even a nice moment where they're sort of, uh, General Glory's praising him, and it feels like it's the writers praising Jack Kirby, is what it feels like, really, is what they're saying. Yeah. But then you saw something that I totally, like, in America, we call it a V8 moment, where I slap my forehead and go, oh my god, how did I not see this? Yeah, I mean, it was just, obviously, um, Captain America, who is the clear character that Glory is based on, and a character that James DeMatteis had a very long run as writer of, and I think that is an influence on this. He was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, and Joe Mason, Joe Simon, that's almost an anagram, not quite, but almost. So I thought, I've got Google, what did Joe Simon look like? And he looked a bit like this, but without a moustache. And then I was starting to think afterwards, are they trying to get a bit of Stan Lee there, but without the wig on? I don't know. Not that I'm suggesting Stan Lee ever wore a wig. (laughs) Of course. Right, right. But, you know, I think they're trying to talk about the great people who created comics. And I think this whole storyline, you know, going back to the first episode of Glory Bound, where they went to the comic convention, and it's just so... Even though it's taken the mick out of loving comics, it's also so respectful and so... It just loves how wonderful these creators were who made the comics that we love. 
And the whole thing, you're right, it's a love letter to Jack Kirby. It's a love letter to Joe Simon, to Stan Lee, who did a lot of Captain America, and probably loads of other people whose names I don't even know who worked on them. But they've clearly read it all, and they know these people were important. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because Joe Simon was the writer, but they're sort of put, mm. putting him in the role of the artist here. And, and here comes the V8 moment here. You're about mm. to share this now. And I'm like, well, if they're giving tribute to Joe Simon, you know, kind of mm. put, painting him in the role of the artist, what about tribute to Jack Kirby? And that's when you dropped your knowledge bomb, which was... I think that Ernie, as an adult, looks a bit like Jack Kirby. He looks like Jack Kirby without the cigar. You take the cigar off Jack Kirby, he looks like Ernie. It is not just a bit like Jack Kirby. He looks like Jack Kirby. And I can't believe I didn't see that. When I saw that in your notes about how Ernie looked like Jack Kirby, I was like, oh my gosh. So, of course he does. Uh, And that's where you get your Joe Simon and Jack Kirby connections right there. And wow, I I, I feel like I was hit in the face with a bucket of cold water water when I saw that and I I just was embarrassed I hadn't picked up on that in the last couple issues so thank you so much for that insight yeah I don't know why it came to me so obviously but I just I think it was after reading your comment about Jack Kirby that I was looking at it with Kirby in my head Mm -hmm. and then I suddenly saw it and I'd never seen that before myself it's a kind of the two of us working together that saw that connection it's partnership it can't be a coincidence oh no 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 especially when there cannot be a coincidence at all this whole thing is a tribute to Captain America and Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. It absolutely is on purpose. So, yeah, yeah. that's great. And jo- I think it, it's basically trying to say, you know, the people who make comics are heroes, you know. And, uh, I mean, in some ways, it's tongue in cheek because they know they're talking about themselves as well. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also quite sincere as well. You know, it is sincere. Well, in a way, it's sort of what we're doing with this podcast. You know, they're mm. paying tribute to the comic creators they read as kids. And that's mm. what we're doing now. Now, I yeah. hope that new Kirk Sharp is not representative of anyone because he's clearly up to something shady you know last yeah. episode uh well part of the part of the discussion in this issue is joe simon i'm sorry joe mason says that there's a missing issue of general glory that he drew yeah. the final story well last issue we saw in newkirk sharp's safe he had some original comic book pages like pages that the artist drew so clearly that last issue that joe mason worked on is sitting in newkirk sharp's vault so he's clearly got and he tried to manipulate earning into killing General Glory this issue. So clearly New Kirk Sharp is up to some shadiness. I have not read ahead to issue 50 intentionally, uh, but I'm pretty confident that's all going to play out next issue. I must say I've not reread it for quite some time. Um, so I don't remember either. But I mean, he just looks like a villain, doesn't he? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's drawn like he's come out of the Dick Tracy trip or something. <laughs> you know, you just imagine that under there, I, that's because I was talking about Warren Beatty earlier, wasn't it? But you just imagine that Dustin Hoffman is under lots of plastic makeup there. It just look, he's up to no good. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Page 16. He just, at the top of the page there, he just looks evil. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very much so. So just a few comments left uh, on the issue for myself. So we mentioned Shiloh. I got to say, you know, with Chekhov's Shiloh, uh, that better pay off in the finale because he's now appeared a couple of times now. And I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for there to be a reason for Shiloh to be in this book. So again, the the Chekhov Shiloh reference being, of course, Chekhov's gun. Uh, So that that hopefully that's going to pay off next issue. I mean, I'm happy for him to be there as I can be. Let's be honest. (laughs) 
they not everybody has to have a point. Well, but the fact that they introduced him in this story is why I'm referring to it as that. Yeah, because like you know, Fire and Ice haven't had much to do, and that's okay because they're part of the team and they've had other opportunities. But uh, yeah, I feel like there's got to be a reason. So then uh, a couple of art and things on page twelve when the Nazi bunker collapses, the evil eye leaves. There's just a funny bit, and I got to assume this is a Linda Medley thing. I don't know, but as the bunker collapses, there's you know the the, the evil old Nazis are all running these geriatric Nazis, and one of them is just sitting here smiling and clinging to this pretty blonde nurse, which is just hilarious. I mean, that is delightful. It's just wonderful, that characterization. He looks the happiest he's ever been in his life. (laughs) He really does. He's like, I'll die like this, it'll do. Right, right. Uh, We can all hope we go out like that, right? Uh, Then on page 17, uh, there is a a panel where they're flying in the, not the bug, they're flying in a new, uh, the JLI jet, and Fire and Ice are sitting there uh, holding... General Glory's dog. And General Glory's dog now has a dog tag that says JLI, and he's wearing a cowl. He's got a superhero cowl on. It's a blue cowl with a yellow star, just like General Glory, and we find out his name is Liberty. That is an absolute hoot. It is absolutely... And I love the fact that Ice is kissing him on the head while he's going... Just so adorable. You just, you know that Ice, the kind of character who would make friends with any pet. Yes. That she met. She just is. It's obvious. I adore that. I adore that. I don't know whether that was in Giffen's intention or that came out of uh, of Linda Medley's efforts, but I love that Liberty is now part of the team in his own way. Yeah. So I have to ask, here we go, at the end, the verdict. So each episode we've been talking about this. So what did we think of the issue? I think we already kind of showed our hands here, but did this issue perpetuate the myth that the General Glory saga wasn't that great, or was it a pleasant surprise? What do you think? Um, I mean, I've always loved the General Glory story, so it's not a surprise. Okay. It was even better than I remembered it. I I think this is well worth reading. If you haven't read this in 30 years, or you've never read it, find it and read it, because it is, it's truly some of the best stuff, I think, in JLI. For me, uh, and thanks for asking, uh, I find it an absolute joy. I really enjoy this. Now, as I said, there's a few pages where the art isn't my favorite, but the vast majority of it looks great. The story is super fun. It's still unfolding properly. I don't feel like this was a wasted filler issue. I feel like uh, that this has been great. It's been a wonderful surprise for me as I reread these, and I'm thrilled I have. Now, I, I do yeah. have to wonder, though, what does it say about General Glory, this upstanding you know, American hero, that uh, two of my guests have been both British to help me cover it? So I don't know. Well, I think what it might say is that Americans don't like to laugh at themselves. But maybe uh. that's just me. I just think that. I'm gonna, there's going to be bombs coming across the ocean at me, isn't there? Uh, I think of all the listeners of this show, we're all going to agree with you, probably, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so now the one thing that's left to do is the... Wahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Damien will pick one single moment and they will be awarded the coveted Wahaha Award. Damien, you're the guest, so what is your nomination? Well, mine is a single panel. It's on page 11 of the issue. And it is Schmidt working his way down to the basement. And he's walking along doing a Nazi goose step. And he says, the others may have grown fat, weak, indolent, fearful, but not me. Well, I have put on a few pounds and I'm not nearly as strong as I used to be. (laughs) (laughs) We talked earlier about 30 years on, we're different people. That really, it just, I laugh. And you know that when James Demoteus wrote, I can't say his name the same way twice, by the way. But when 
<laughs> when he wrote that, he was having a twin. You just know it. But I love the idea of they're fat and useless and I'm not, but I'm a little junky. (laughs) That really made me laugh more than anything else in the issue. Just the idea of growing old disgracefully, even if you're a Nazi. (laughs) That is a fantastic moment. It's not what I picked, but I do really like that quite a bit, especially artistically. It's hilarious with the the goose stepping, this little old, you know, wobbly man goose stepping. Mine was less of a specific moment and more of a, a concept, which is general glory falling. Where General Glory is just falling 20 stories, and he is not bothered. He is, you know, a not even one bit. He He's, again, speechifying. He has every intention. Uh, he, he talks about how he's either going to grab a flagpole, and another point he talks about how he's going to grab a, a uh, fire escape and just sort of rappel down uh, rung by rung. And it just cracked me up on how he just didn't wasn't bothered at all in a very superhero style. That is a tough one because that is very funny. And that is, oh, oh, I don't want to give ground, though. Because you're always winning these. Not always. Only late. Lately, I've I've had enough of, of losing. So I started picking better moments. I think is what I started doing. Mm. <laughs> I know, and that is very very funny. And it was my favorite bit of the bit that I had to summarize as well. Just this, you know. Oh yeah, I was telling you know. The president, may I call you Skipper? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's fantastic, isn't it? I think you've won. I think my sore knees cannot stand up to your (laughs) amazing, you know, how high up is he that he can say all that? I think you've won. I I absolutely love the moment you picked, but yeah, I'm going to have to go with myself. One, because I think it's a good reoccurring thing. It goes five pages and I'm incredibly smart, so I have to give it to myself. So, Well, I mean, yeah, you must be. You told me you were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was that about Americans not being okay making fun of themselves? So, Congratulations to General Glory. You have won the coveted Bwahaha moment. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, Damien, I need to ask a favor, if you don't mind. Um, Would you mind hanging out here for a little bit, just in case the embassy is attacked by a giant floating eyeball? Uh, Ah. You know, if it is, you can just do the classic Three Stooges, yoink, and just poke it right in the eye, is my thought. Yeah, okay. Uh, Yes, I have a nice sharp stick ready in case. It'll be fine. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much, Damien. And don't worry, we will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I am going to head over to the London Embassy for the 25th issue of Justice League Europe. Damien, Damien. What? You know, in the bedroom, there's thousands of boxes of comics... Thousands of boxes of comics. I'll have you know, I've only got 47 boxes of comics. 47? 47, that's barely any. 47 is less than one box of comics for every year I've been alive. Do you think that is dangerous? We've got so many boxes piled up by the bed. I think it's highly unlikely they would fall, though. I've stacked them quite well. What would you think if I told you that maybe you should get rid of some? What? It's only a suggestion. How dare you? I love those comics. Do you love all of those comics? I love almost all of those comics. But should you love these comics? I love them all. I will not part with any of them. How very dare you. Prove it. Well, I suppose we could start working our way through my collection reading them together and deciding whether or not I should love this comic. Sounds like a podcast. Well, we are two middle-aged men. We probably should start a podcast at some point. 
you're right, everybody else has got a podcast. So listen to Should I Love This Comic with me, Damien Drewey-Whiter. And me, Irigail Drewey-Whiter. Where we will go through comics and tell you, Should I I Love This this Comic? Go to shouldilovethis.blogspot.com where you can find all our latest episodes. You can also see a gallery of images that we talk about in the episode. Should I love this comic? I think so. What do you think? Hey, Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Mambat fighting a were jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Ruth Wayne? Check and check. Reprints for all new stories. New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. Giant size issues? A mere giant size until issue 16, and then dollar comics from issues 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We are having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion, so listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman Family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the Bat Kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 25. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. She is another international guest, folks, this time hailing all the way from Canada. I keep telling you people, the show is called Justice League International. Anyway, she's an improv expert and French is her native language. Look at that, an issue all about Crimson Fox and we actually have a French-speaking guest. That, folks, is called Strategery. Now, on top of all of that, when I snuck across the Canadian border a few years ago, she took a day out of her schedule to go whale-watching with me. That immediately gets you on the show, folks. Make a note of that. Please help me welcome to the show, Shotgun. Welcome to the London Embassy, Shotgun. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. We're so excited to have you. I mean, you're racking up your punch card of Fire and Water Podcast Network shows to appear on. I mean, you've, you've done a bunch of them now, so I was very excited to get you on this one. I did, but uh, I will never come close to Amelie when it comes to the girls of the whole art move. She, she, <laughs> her main goal is to be on the most podcasts possible. She's never made it on this one, so you're ahead of her there. That means get ready, because she will ask to be on this one. <laughs> We've got bragging rights ahead of her at the very least, at the very least. Now, I originally invited Shotgun to be on the show because looking at this issue, this is the culmination of this three-issue arc all about Crimson Fox, right? And Crimson Fox speaks French. And Shotgun, in case you guys didn't pick up on it from our intro, her native language is French. In fact, she did the bit in the Justice League International promo all about Crimson Fox. So I thought, perfect, French-speaking guest, French-speaking character, this would be great. And 
And exactly how much French are in these three issues? Uh, did you check, Shotgun? Uh, there was a one line that was promptly interrupted and th <laughs> then repeated in English because they need to practice their English. So I am terribly sorry I invited you for a, a comic book about worms instead of a comic book about French. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So uh, as far as the Just League International goes, you know, what is your origin story with the JLI? Like, have you, have you been a fan of the book forever? Did you read it? Or is this your first time really reading them? That was my first time. So I'm really grateful that you took the time to send me all three issues so I could at least not start from a third of a story. <laughs> uh, normally, I tend to read manga over American comic books, but the closest I got to experiencing or discovering that media was by writing for the Legion of Super Bloggers with Cisco way back when, and reviewing comic books for our podcast, The Hot Moo or Not, and also a special edition, Who's Hot and Who's Not, coming back this fall. Exciting. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, basically, that was the first time I've even read anything about the Justice League in general. So I had to Google pretty much everything just to understand what was going on who were those people uh some of them i kind of knew a little because mm -hmm. you know i mean the flash is pretty much well known everywhere right but uh the others i had no clue so did the comics explain enough about the characters for a new reader that you got the gist of it or you just you were still lost and still needed the wikipedia on all of them to get it straight a couple of them i had to really check more like i i had their names but nothing much other than that sure Uh, and even like Power Girl, which I when I Googled, I said, oh, okay, that person, that's not the costume I'm used to. Oh, right, right, right. Even though I, I say that, but I've seen her in pictures. Sure, <laughs> you know, sure. I haven't read any comics about her either. It was not that well explained for a first time reader, but still, I was pleasantly surprised that they took the time to like name the characters not only by their like real name, but also by their secret like Elias, their superhero names. So at least that gave me that to go ahead and Google a bit more. That's a good point, because that's one of the things we've talked about on the show, is that the Just League Europe group really do refer to each other by their first names quite frequently, rather than being, you know, hey, Flash, it's always, hey, Wally, that kind of thing, which it almost gives you a sense that there's a camaraderie there, because they call each other, whereas, whereas the Just League America book, they're almost all exclusively calling each other by the superhero names. Here, they're calling each other by their real names, which, I don't know, gives a little sense of family, I suppose. Absolutely. I think that's something I've also observed throughout the issue as well. Uh, just the friendly banter and all. So I thought that was pretty neat. Awesome. Well, why don't we get into this? Let's talk about it. So this issue is Justice League Europe number 25, published by DC Comics, cover dated April 1991. It was on the shelves March 5th, 1991, and the cover price was $1, four shiny quarters. Now, this cover is by Bart Sears. Uh, Shotgun, do you mind describing the cover to us? Sure. I'll give it a shot. Uh, <laughs> so before reading anything, I thought the Justice League Europe was in some sort of sewers. It looks uh, like it, yeah. It's really brown, green in colors. We see the team uh, covered in gooey stuff and they seem to be falling down that sort of hole mm -hmm. in the belly of the beast then that title kind of gave me the impression that okay so this is not a sewer probably they're inside something or someone it's a dynamic cover uh, there's a lot going on but I don't think it does a really good job of like really giving a spotlight to a certain character of another it's just it's a bit of a I mean and I think that's intended but it's a bit messy. <laughs> I would totally agree. It's um, I, I don't want to use the word disappointing, but I think I have to because you know when you reach issue 25, that 
that's kind of a milestone in comic books, like 25, 50, 75, 100. Those are usually big sort of celebratory issues, right? Where they make a big deal about reaching a certain mark. There's no celebration here whatsoever. It's just another kind of standard cover. And it's not really compelling. I mean, yeah, they just look like they're falling down a hole, really. Mm -hmm. You're not even sure whether they're falling down or sideways or what direction. Because they're clearly being pushed. Because Captain Adam's fingers are digging in. You can see he's sliding and, you know, Power Girl slamming into him and stuff. But yeah, and all the brown and goopy stuff, it, it makes it kind of hard to enjoy. I mean, the only characters really kind of do anything interesting is Metamorpho. He's, he's created these giant, like, uh, pickaxes, and he's trying to, like, you know, dig his way in to, to keep his grip. Yes. Uh, I mean, for one thing, I think it, it does a bit of dishonor to Power Girl just being a damsel of distress trying yeah. to hold on to Captain Adam like that. So I would say that if I would see that issue on a shelf, I'm not sure I would be compelled to pick it up compared to other issues that would be on the same shelf at the moment. Uh, also, one of the things that I thought is there's a good potential here to do a bit of contrast between the really colorful heroes versus that tunnel or stomach that is really gross. Mm-hmm. But all that gooey stuff kind of covers that, and you don't you don't have that contrast that really pops. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think two two follow-ups to that is one is I think if the if the goop and and the and the worm had been colored differently, perhaps there could be an, another way to make all this work. I'm not sure if coloring really could have saved it, but maybe it would have. And the other is Power Girl. Yeah, it's a, a, a as you were mentioning. Very unfortunate pose. However, I think I, you know, uh, looking at the history of this book, I imagine part of the reason she's got that pose so they could work a butt shot into it, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, that, that would sound about right. I mean, yeah. although, for the ladies here, we have a good shot of Wally's butt as well. That's true, yeah. A bit covered, though, but still. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty much uh, equal opportunity beefcake and cheesecake uh, kind <laughs> of uh, artist here. So you get a little bit of everything. And one thing I, I, that really took a while for me is that I saw that blob with blue in it and I was mm-hmm. like, what is this? And I kept looking at it. I zoomed in on the digital version and finally I realized that that was Blue Jay. It took me forever. <laughs> well, that's kind of par for the course. Blue Jay, even though he joined the team, he's pretty much the forgotten member. Like, I don't know that he's done anything since he joined the team worth merit. So he's just kind of on the team, but no one ever thinks about him. And I, I just realized something looking at this. You know, this whole three-issue arc, it's about the worms, surely, but it's primarily about Crimson Fox. And she didn't even make the rate the cover. That's absolutely right. That's that seems like a misstep as well. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'm sounding really critical, folks. It, it's a fun comic, but uh, could have been a better cover. Let's just put it that way. All right. Well, why don't we get on the inside? So, plot and uh, breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Bart Sears. Inker is Randy Elliott. Letter is Bob LePan. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Nightcrawlers. You want to start us off? Sure. Let's try this. <laughs> <laughs> the issue opens with Godzilla-sized worms threatening to destroy the Refson cosmetic factory, along with our hero, Crimson Fox. Fox, in her secret identity of Vivian Daramis, has been captured and tied to the Revson building. Am I saying Revson correctly? Uh, you're saying Revson correctly, yeah, but I gotta say Daramis, that was like the sexiest Daramis. way. Okay. Well, no, well, however you said it was better. That was like the sexiest way I've ever heard her name said. <laughs> That, that's the French pronunciation. And I'm keeping this in the show. <laughs> sure. And uh, get get ready because Mr. Puantar is coming. Wow. <laughs> 
Maurice Puyantard, the evil old man controlling the worms, commands them to destroy the factory. During the chaos, an argument ensues between Puyantard and Smythe, one of his fellow Druid Council members. Smythe is concerned about the rapidly approaching dawn and potential injury to the worms. Puyantard ignores the concerns and puts Smythe in his place, resulting in the other Druid Council members abandoning Puyantard. Exploding out from one of the worms is Metamorpho. He's brought the GLE to the scene, safely inside his shape shifted body. Additionally, we discovered a Flash managed to zip into the factory in time to rescue Vivian Daramis. Unfortunately, the destruction of the factory releases a cloud of toxic chemicals blowing directly towards a nearby town. Puyantel discovers Vivian survived and stalks her to the forest. The Daramis twins were expecting him and reveal Crimson Fox true identity. Now, Constance and Vivian want revenge for Puyantel, killing both their mother and the man who raised them. Meanwhile, the League chases the cloud of poison gas. Silver Sorceress casts a spell to contain the cloud, while Captain Adam unleashes a massive blast in hopes of disintegrating the poison cloud. I'll take it from here. So Captain Adam successfully destroys the poison cloud with just one shot to the surprise of everyone. The rest of the League wonder why they were even needed. So from there, the team decides to battle the giant worms. Meanwhile, Maurice Puanter, which I can't say nearly as cool as you, so I will continue to call him Old Man Stank, uh, he continues to stalk Constance and Vivian, firing his gun, missing until the gun is empty. He runs to the tuning fork, hoping to recruit the worms to aid him. However, his special device used to activate the fork is missing. At that same moment, the sun rises, which kills the worms instantly. A giant worm collapses, crushing Old Man Stank, while the two De Aramis sisters watch and smile. The remainder of the Druid Council escape and plan to return to their old ways. As the giant worms die from exposure to the sun, the League are stunned at how well things are going today. First, the gas cloud was easily dispersed. Now the worms were destroyed without the League lifting a finger. Must be their lucky day. Crimson Fox rejoins the group with Vivian Aramis. Again, I can't say it nearly as cool as you. So uh, Vivian's in tow, which is actually Constance posing as Vivian, which gets kind of confusing. But anyway, the team is none the wiser of Crimson Fox's secret identity. When the League returns to the London Embassy, they discover Kilowog is preparing to leave, claiming he's helping a fellow alien. However, Elongated Man and Catherine Colbert are pleading with Kilowog not to go. The League members are confused about the urgency of the situation until it's revealed that the other alien that Kilowog Kilowog intends to help is none other than Starro the Conqueror. Next issue, Starro lives? Whew, all right, there we go. So, let me ask you, uh, you know, uh, what did you think of the issue? And if, if some of this applies to the whole three-issue saga as well, that's perfectly fine. But what did you think? I actually quite enjoyed it. So, obviously, reading the three issues was a must to really jump into that story and, yeah. and understand what was going on. It would be weird to just jump in in the middle of the climax of the worms coming in. Yeah. But there are little things that I would change and we can criticize later. I think it was a fun story with a good revenge arc. Mm-hmm. And it got me hooked. Like, I have many questions of what's coming next. Look, the Druid, what are their old ways? When are they coming back? If they're ever coming back. And evidently, the Star Room reveal at the end is interesting as well. And I can imagine that the next issues will be interesting as well. Yeah, I don't think we ever see the Druid Council again. I think they explored that and they just move right on. So the, the Star Room plot, I'm interested in seeing because I, I literally have absolutely no memory of reading it. Like, I look at the covers and I'm like, these are great. But I have no memory of the Star Room story. So I'm really looking forward to getting 
into that one myself. And again, as I said, no clue whatsoever what anything of this normally is. I only know Starro is because of the Suicide Squad. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That makes sense. Oh, my. It's, how funny to think that these characters that are, you know, in our heads as comic book fans, they've lived sort of as these things that only we knew about. And now major Hollywood productions, everyone knows who Starro is. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's becoming more and more mainstream. So people like me can enjoy that geek stuff and <laughs> almost understand everything. Almost. Almost. There we go. So I got to ask you, uh, Vivian. So obviously, as we said, they don't speak much French. But Vivian and Constance, between the two of them, Vivian's the one with the really thick French accent. So they, they did their best to write it phonetically through the story. Do you feel like they kind of nailed that or were they like way off? I think it's it's really the typical like French from France. Mm-hmm. Like they have that the and the th that really turns into a z instead. Mm-hmm. Being a French Canadian and it being the language I use mostly for work, we don't necessarily have that much of an accent. Don't get me wrong. I know I have a pretty thick <laughs> accent. But uh, I think it does a good job to actually like accentuate the fact that it's not her first language, at least. Okay. So even when I read the first issues, because I think it's less prominent in this one in particular, but the two issues that came before, I think it was a lot more implied that really there was this accent that ke- that followed the character all along. And and actually, you know, I should point out too for those at home, it gets more confusing because you know Constance and Vivian they they share a secret identity of Vivian, like they they have pretended that Constance has died, and so they each pretend when they're out in public to be Vivian. And so throughout the issue, let's see if I can get this right. Constance is the one who's in danger. She's the one who's strapped up to the building. However, uh, the bad guy thinks she's Vivian. So she's actually Constance pretending to be Vivian, which is very confusing at the end when she shows up. And anyway, even me who knew the story had a little struggle with that. I did not catch that, you see. I was certain (laughs) that it was the way it was written. But I I guess it makes sense because... That's right. In the second issue, she's the one going to the party, or is it even in the first? It was issue? the first. Yeah, you got to remember what happened two issues ago to even know that this isn't Vivian. And I, I think at this point, maybe they just didn't care. They're like, you know what? Let's just get through the story. Let's not try and confuse people. Maybe I don't know because they really didn't point it out in this issue. No, the first issue was a lot more clear who was who because of the way one of them had the thicker accent and all. Yeah. But it got lost, and I seem to remember that there was a time where I think it was maybe in the second issue where she tried to correct herself to sound mm-hmm. more like her sister. Yeah. And I think that's that might have been the writers and everyone saying like, okay, we can't keep track of who's who, just make them speak the same. <laughs> That was actually one of the speculations of, uh, as fans, what we thought. Because when they introduced Kimson Fox, they didn't tell us this whole thing with the twin stuff until this, these issues. This is when we finally find out, you know, 20 issues on after she's been introduced. And so there were multiple writers on the book early on. So sometimes she had a thick accent, sometimes she didn't. And we think that was just because they kept switching writers. So we thought maybe they backed into her origin being two different people simply because they couldn't get it right in their writing. Just a theory. We don't know for sure. I mean, it would work either way. Yeah. But they would never admit that. I don't think they would. Right. Yeah. In the poor League, even after this story's over, they still don't know that Constance and Vivian are Crimson Fox. They didn't bother to tell the League. Uh, so they're off, you know, at the very end, they're wondering who's, you know, what the deal with Crimson Fox is. Now, one thing that bugged me, as somebody who's been reading it for a while, a few issues ago, Metamorpho was sitting on a park bench with Constance, or Crimson, he knew she was Crimson Fox, without her mask on. So he saw what she looked like without her mask. Now, it was dark and foggy in that scene. I guess you could say that, but I would think he'd still recognize her and go, hey, wait a minute, you two are the same person. But, 
Oh, well. But could it be also that he sees her, like, strapped to that building and whatever, in, in the heat of the moment, in the middle of the action, it didn't really, like, understand what he was seeing? Also. Yeah, that's quite possible. But at the same time, if he sees her next to Crimson Fox with the disguise, his, the mind doesn't go there, and people have face blindness. It's fine. Don't, <laughs> you're digging too much. <laughs> I'm glad face blindness works in multiple languages. That's wonderful. <laughs> So you mentioned her being strapped up on the billboard. Let's talk about that. So one of the things that doesn't sit well with me here, 31 years later after this issue is published, is there's a lot of like women in jeopardy or women needing help in this issue is, is what I felt like. You know, Constance is strung up on the sign. Constance has to get saved by Wally. Constance and Vivian are hunted by old man Stank. You know, Silver Sorceress holds back the gas, but it's Captain Adam who saves the day. Crimson Fox and Constance don't end up stopping Old Man Stack in the end. The worms end up. So I, I felt like some of that didn't sit well with me. I mean, you had you had a comment I know about the treatment of women, as far as like how with Wally and everything, right? Yeah, that 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 was definitely something that stuck with me. That one line when Wally saved, uh, I guess Constance or Vivian, whatever that is, <laughs> at that moment, right? And he says, "A woman saved is a woman earned." gag reflex like yeah. I, I kind of vomited a little in my mouth <laughs> and you're supposed to wally in these issues they have made him absolutely despicable towards women i mean he's just such a lech in these issues and th he wasn't in his own book it's just something they chose to continue in these issues and it's uh it's 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 gross it really is all these years later i'd be curious to see like 30 years ago how that like translated was it like people thought that was funny or did they even at that time be like eh I'll tell you my memory, because I was reading this book. My memory was, I thought it was funny. Then again, I wasn't a very enlightened... I'm Not that I'm a very enlightened guy now, I mean, <laughs> but I wasn't terribly enlightened back then. And But at the same time, I was irritated because that same personality had, had moved on in the Flash series. In his own Flash series, he'd moved beyond being like, you know, the, the horny teenage boy, basically. And it moved past that. And I think we all kind of wanted him to move past to here. But he keeps this kind of behavior up. And the stuff he says towards Power Girl at different points is just terrible. Maybe it's being in Europe, you know, <laughs> all those pretty ladies around him, oh my different gosh. culture, he would try his luck. I don't know. It looked to me like it felt like he was some sort of jerk, basically. Yeah, yeah, I would totally Not necessarily agree. something you would want for a hero. Yeah. Now, I guess they, uh, I talked about not great optics, but there was a moment where Vivian and Constance kind of, they do get some agency in a scene, right? Yeah, that moment when they finally cornered Puantar in the woods. By the way, if you want to use that voice clip of me saying Puantar every, every time you need to say his name in the future, go ahead, it would be a fun gag. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that moment in the woods when they, uh, they finally corner him, I think it, it's really great. They get their moment it's their revenge i guess i agree they do not end up disposing of him it's the worms themselves that basically killed the man but they still i think since they're supposed to be heroes anyway it's probably better this way mm. so that they don't get their their hands too dirty but they still get to enjoy that moment and they really seem to be enjoying the moment yes they're under fire and all and they're fleeing but at the same time they're toying with him yeah which, which i find quite fun and problematic <laughs> in different in different aspects. I don't know if I'm going to sound like a psychopath or something, but I really enjoyed the fact that they're really taking 
their time and enjoying this moment because they've been wanting this for so long. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he's responsible for their mother's death. He murdered, essentially, the, the man who raised them. So, absolutely. I, I didn't mind that at all. Yeah, he deserves it. He's a jerk. Yep. And you, you make a good point, too, about the fact that since they're heroes, they're not supposed to kill. So, yeah, because I, I wanted them to kill him. But you're right. That, that would have been a hard thing to come back from, being a hero and being a murderer. So, yeah, you're right. And, and they, it did give us those two great panels. Uh, the repeated panels, Bart Sears has clearly drawn the panel once, used it twice, though, and all he did was change the ladies' mouths. So in one Absolutely. panel, they're just looking sort of flatly, and then he dies. And then it's the same panel, but they're, they're, they've got the tiniest hint of a smile. Tiniest yeah, hint yeah, of a smile. It's perfect. Small smirk. It's yep. really it's really well done, because you don't want it to be too intense either, because that's just psychotic again. So this <laughs> is just like, you got what you get what you deserve. Yeah. No, absolutely. I like that. But yeah, look, looking at that scene in particular, and looking at that tuning fork... Mm-hmm. There are many things I don't understand about that tool <laughs> and how it works. Right. Uh, something that bothered me from the moment I, I first read the comic, because I've, I've read it a couple of times just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Sure. And, of course, Puyanta rings the tuning fork to summon the worms. And then once they're summoned, he orders them to devour. They do as he bids. But then he lost control of them all of a sudden, and then he needs to, like, reactivate the tuning fork to keep them going. Why were they able to hear him from so far away when you look at the second page when he tells them to devour the factory? He's right. so far away, but they still hear him. So that that also, like, bothers me. And, and of course, the fact that apparently there's only one single clapper in the whole world that can activate that item. Like, a rock wouldn't work. Right. Many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's just convenient. Well, I was going to say, there's a very pure scientific answer for this that we rely on a lot of podcasting. Uh, and that answer would be, because comics. That's that's your scientific answer right there. No, no, I, I think we've heard that explanation a lot on our other podcast. <laughs> just, it's just comics. But yeah, I guess it's plot convenient that he cannot call them back or use them because then I don't know what would happen, but probably not this. And we want Puyantel to be out of the way, obviously, and carry on with the rest of the story. That probably will be a bit more interesting for usual readers with sorrow and all. Yeah. Not just a guy that stinks. <laughs> So it, it, yeah, it's definitely a moment where we want him to get his comeuppance. So by the way, did I translate that correctly? Is, is, Puanteur. Is it supposed to mean basically something smelly in French? Yes, it, okay. it is, yes. Perfect. Which, which is really funny for someone who was owning a perfume factory. Right, right. That, made me, that makes me laugh quite a bit. <laughs> it's funny, and, and at the same time, it's just like, uh, you know, you could have pushed this a bit further or made a better joke about it. It's just, it's, it's a bit easy. Well, you, you got to remember... There's an old adage we use, which is, uh, what do you call someone that speaks two languages? Bilingual, I guess. Exactly. What do you call someone that speaks three languages? Trilingual, yeah. What do you call someone that speaks one language? Unilingual. American. American, so, ah! Yeah. So the people who read this comic would have never known. Puanteur. Meant stinky. So that joke went way over our heads. So don't worry. I guess back then, a Google search would not translate for you. <laughs> Google hadn't been invented for another ooh, 10 years, I think, after this. So yeah, that exactly. wasn't. we'd be lucky if you could find Metacrawler or something maybe by that point. I don't even know. 1991. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's talk about the ending, right? So you've got some notes on the big conclusion. I have too. So why don't you start us off on that? So the first thing I, I, I want to say is I just love that panel where the worms are burning up. Mm-hmm. You see all of them, all of the heroes, and it's not the superhero pose, the mm-hmm. regular one. I like how they're just contemplating it and doing nothing about it. And right. just, just enjoying the fact that they don't need to push this any further. It's just taken care of. I like that. I wish... <laughs> Life was like that more often. Right. And I like that right after it, they're talking about finding some wood to knock on. It took me a while to understand what they were referring to. Oh, okay. Because I, I did not make the, the link to the knock on wood superstition. But when I understand it and when it came back at the very end, it really got me. And I think it's it's really good. It's well done. It's a very well executed joke. It really mm-hmm. is. Yeah, because they're celebrating. They're saying, wow, you know, wish things could be this easy all the time. I mean, truthfully, in some ways, the Justice League didn't need to be here. This problem would have took care of itself for the most part. I mean, the worms still would have died with the sun. So they didn't actually save the day. Now, to be fair, they did stop the poison gas cloud. So that was good. And they did... um, Wally saved Vivian or Constance. I don't think she would have been able to free herself. That's fair. So two things did occur from them being there, but stopping the worms was not one of them. I mean, it is really the delusions of old man Stank that, that that saved them on the worms. But I love that because also with that panel where um, Captain Adam's saying, I can't believe how well things are going today as all these worms are just cooking in the background. But you also get, you know, the big sexy pose. You've got Captain Adam's butt. You see all his muscles rippling. You get to see Blue Jay's butt. You get to see a sexy (laughs) shot of Power Girl. That hand on the the hip. Right. It's really good. (laughs) Bart Sears likes to draw sexy people. He really does. And that's fine. I'm there for that. Now, it's also interesting. Along those same lines, as far as things going easy, you know, when Captain Adam destroys the gas cloud with one shot, the whole league's sort of bemoaning. They're like, well, why'd you even need us? You took care of this. And that's actually a little bit like real life because a lot of times we plan for things, right? We set up things, we get all the pieces in place and things sometimes, not often, but work out to our advantage and we didn't need all those plans. It turns out, okay, I didn't need that part of the plan. And that's kind of what happens here. No, absolutely. I'm the kind of person that will have a plan A, plan B, plan C just in case something goes wrong along the way. And it is also part of my everyday task at my work to plan for what could go wrong and Mm -hmm. anticipate it to mitigate the risks. So to see that, I can rely through that. Because yes, I will have extra staff to help me if needed for this event. And then if they're not needed, well, at least they were there if Mm -hmm. I would have needed them. So uh, I think they're a bit harsh because, okay, sure, you weren't needed in the end. But what if you would have been needed? Right. And just enjoy the fact that you can take it slow for once. Right, exactly. And I, and again, I think it works because in almost every comic, you need every single character who showed up. Like, if this character hadn't been there, we wouldn't have made it. Well, this time it worked out differently and that's okay. And yeah, I, again, I like you said, I would love to have an easier day at, at work. So <laughs> I think it works totally. And it's something you just said. That's right. Normally, you always have part of the solution that implicates one of them specifically. It's really mm-hmm. rare. And I'm not a big, again, a big comic reader, but even in movies or the shows that were produced lately, that's very rarely that you don't have like every hero has this moment, like the Mm -hmm. spotlight is given to them at that exact moment because this is their key role to play in this situation. So here, it's completely the opposite. And that's not something we see often, and I really I quite enjoy it. It's refreshing. I was just thinking the same word. Absolutely. Speaking of refreshing, the smell of those worms, uh, oh. prob- probably quite pleasant. So they they just die from exposure to the sun? I mean, like, 
are they vampires or something? That's bizarre. And like, where do they come from? Have they always been under England? And like, there are still a bunch down there? A little kind of unexplained. Yeah, and why do they respond to that tuning fork? And how did they figure that out specifically? Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. But the, the <laughs> fact that they burst into flame in the sun, again, kind of convenient, isn't it? Right. Sort of like the Raiders of the Lost Ark ending, where, you know, that people have noticed nowadays, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Indy, Indiana Jones himself, doesn't affect the plot whatsoever. The story would have resolved exactly the same way, even if he hadn't been there. Sort of that kind of thing. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned earlier the Starro thing. I love that shocker at the end. End, uh, where that guy comes out and he's got a giant starfish on his face. I mean, that was, even for me, knowing there's a Starro storyline coming, I was shocked by that. I was like, whoa! So that was that's pretty exciting. And artistically, it looks great. It looks great, and it's so gutsy. Yeah. Like, what is he doing there? That's their HQ. Like, he's asking for trouble. <laughs> I don't know. There's something really, like, appealing to me when a villain is just like, I'm right here, and I'm challenging you in your turf. And it's very, very gutsy on his part. So I don't know where this is going, but I, I feel, especially with what he's saying, like, we were so worried we'd miss you. Mm-hmm. Is it that he doesn't know that he's supposed to be against them? Or is it <laughs> just that he wants to show how confident he is? So that's something I, I kind of want to read the next issue just to say how it plays. Is it just that he doesn't know or really something like he wanted to present? It's so strange. Yeah, he came asking for help. So, specifically to kill a Who's a who's a whiz with machines? So I, you know, again, I haven't read ahead, so I am curious how it's going to pan out. There was some fun conversations, though, on the way to the embassy, though, between the characters. Yes, absolutely. And that's something, if any of the listeners have listened to the Ho Hot Moot podcast that I do with several other ladies from Atlantic Canada. It's a safe bet. Many of the listeners of the show listen to that. <laughs> and if they don't, you're a fool. Turn off this podcast now and go listen to a Hot Moot or not. You're oh, wasting you're your time kind. here, people. <laughs> but yeah, something we absolutely love is to imagine that the character we're reviewing, how that character would act or what it would say in day-to-day life, the mundane things they would do. When we review, like, buildings, we keep talking about, oh, the kitchen is too far from the bedroom. How will he bring me my grilled cheese in bed? And stuff like that. Right. It's insane that the things we create in our mind to, like, try to find something to say about a building. <laughs> so that's something I really like, that mundane conversation about how to use the tunnels to their advantage, how it seems convenient for Captain Adam to just fly around while for the others that cannot fly it would be more comfortable to use the tunnels I live for that really that's that's what I love most about comics and these characters in general is just to see them in their everyday life having everyday conversation the partner book to this series is Justice League America and that book might be right up your alley then because it's basically what happens in between the fights I mean very rarely do they ever fight a bad guy in that comic it's all about the interpersonal relationships I mean the old running joke used to be the comic's not about saving the world it's about Tuesday night's pizza night at the embassy you know where all the team gets together and they get to eat pizza that night or whatever it's and they're always getting on each other's nerves and there's you know whose turn is it to take out the trash I mean it's all those ludicrous kinds of things that you're talking about is is tackled in that book on a regular basis that sounds amazing <laughs> And it is. I mean, it's the dream. <laughs> well, that's what exploded the franchise. I mean, this started with that one book, and then you get Justice League Europe, and then you get Justice League Quarterly, and it, you get all the spinoff books, and it all came out of the same sort of love for the mundane, you know, for the ridiculousness, for superheroes acting like people, not just acting like perfect, you know, icons. No, exactly, because we, we're used to seeing them victorious and saving the day. But the afterward, 
like seeing the wreckage that's left and how people handle that or what will they do to help people rebuild or just you know I, I will always remember that scene at the the post credit scene in Marvel's Avengers right they just eat shawarma right it's so good it's so good because because absolutely you're that's what they do afterwards like you know they need to take care of themselves at some point well if you genuinely want to read some of that I will send you two issues in particular one is called Moving Day which is all about them moving to a new embassy and it's there's not a super villain in the issue and it's riotously <laughs> funny and there's another one with just like Europe called The French Lesson where the team go to learn French and it turns out they're taking a, a night class to learn French with their arch enemies without knowing it and they have to act like they're students and all this stuff and it's riotously funny because they're just people being people please dude both sounds so good oh yeah I want to bring you that we're going to convert shotgun folks she's going to be one of us one of us <laughs> one of us well overall you know with this issue and the previous two you know I, I've shared some criticisms my guests have shared some criticisms and I don't mean to speak for you I'll give you a chance to second here but overall I enjoyed the three issue arc I really did uh, some of my recommendations would be you know it could probably be shortened to two issues I think the second issue really did kind of pad it out I think uh, if you could bring it down to those two issues and maybe give the women characters a little more agency I think you've got a really solid fun artistically beautiful story what about you what do you think no as I said I really enjoyed it I think you were right when you say that it's it's a bit slow so in three issues they, they could have built it better and condensed it into two issues for sure but I, I think it was fun and the climax it's not what I expected when mm -hmm. I saw the giant worm I thought okay this is going to be a big fight but at the same time I love when it's taken me like out of the comfort zone I was expecting the big fight and how will they destroy all these worms and finally they were just destroyed by themselves so it's not what I was expecting and that's something I like about my media in general just to take like a left field or curveball and just bring us in a total other direction so no I, I think I think it was fun it was a great way to introduce I guess that was the first appearance of Crimson Fox was it? Well no she she actually appeared like 20 issues before this but this is the first time they've ever really dived into her origin like she's been on the team but we didn't know anything about her so this okay. is the first time we really found out all, all her backstory okay so that's what I figured because for the first issue she just walks in like she owns the place so I figured it was not her first appearance but uh, it did a good job to give a, yes of course a really short backstory but at least some explanation as to who she is and what is her motivation and she also gets her revenge in the end so yeah and, and they've really laid the groundwork for her to be an interesting character the question is will it pay off and uh, I guess we'll find out as we go on through further issues I hope it does I don't have a lot of confidence but I hope it does um, and I really hope Blue Jay does something soon <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, this is the part of the show where we are going to move on and we're going to nominate the One Punch Award. This is where we're going to nominate our favorite moment of the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or funny or dramatic or whatever, whatever aspect we liked about the issue. Both myself and Shotgun will pick one moment and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Shotgun, you're the guest. Uh, would you like to nominate your favorite moment of the issue? It's really hard for me because there's really two moments that really got my attention. And those were obviously uh, the one page panel where the worms are burning in the background and the heroes just being like, well, why are we even here? So the everything is going so great today. That made me laugh. I really, really enjoyed it. So that's the, the funny 
I guess, a word for me. But at the same time, I really, really love the moment Constance or Vivian reveals her face to Puantar and those two panels where, oh, actually, that's the second time we used French. Uh, I forgot about this one, but adieu, Monsieur Puantar. And ah. then his reaction. That, that really got me as well because that's the big reveal. That's the moment he realized he's in a big mess right now. And, you know, that it leads to that revenge moment that the both ladies getting what they wanted, the culmination of what we've been reading for the past two issues. No, those are great. Those are both really good moments. And one of them is the same I picked. I also picked uh, the moment on, p- on page 18 where the worms are just burning and all the heroes are standing there watching going, I can't believe how well things are going today. Because the contrast of his statement with the, you know, the worms dying and writhing in pain, and all, it's just, it was a fun moment. It's great artistically. However, I also like the moment with uh, Vivian giving the revelation of who she was. I mean, you got that great moment where she's staring him down and he's shocked and, all right, I'll be irredeemable. She's got a, he's got a sexy butt shot in there too. So <laughs> I, I could go either way. So tell you what, you're the guest. I'm, since I'm good with both of them, I'm going to let you pick. Which one is the winner? Um... I think I will go with the reveal. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's basically, since it's her story, that leads to that moment. That's what we were waiting for. I think that should be the one to receive. The award. There we go. Congratulations to Vivian and your reveal. And Puanteur. You have won the One Punch Award. Where with pride, it is uh, as tangible as our love for that moment. <laughs> And I mean, looking at that page, she's really sexy. Like the when she's wearing the cowl and after, very sexy as well. Oh yeah, without a doubt, absolutely. Now, shotgun, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind hanging out here in the London Embassy and help clean up all the nasty fried worm guts, if you don't mind? You see, I thought you just said that it was a bit too sexist or you know misogynistic here, and you want me to clean. <laughs> Do you really want to go there? I apologize. Instead, could you supervise all the men? cleaning is that is that okay oh that sounds perfect perfect (laughs) well thank you shotgun i appreciate that and don't worry we will bring you back at the end of the show and folks while shotgun's taking care of this for us i'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called justice law All right, folks, as always, get out on the social medias and let us know your thoughts. We're on Twitter as JLI Podcast. We're on Facebook as Justice League International Blah Ha Podcast. You can use our hashtag FW Podcast, or the best way, as always, is to go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your thoughts on the show post there. And at the bottom line is, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. So we want you to be part of the discussion. Now, uh, we're going to get into your comments from last episode. We're going to be pulling it from our website, email, social media, things like that. Uh, as always, just pulling bits and pieces because there's so much feedback. And we're going to be covering the most recent episode where we discussed Justice League America number 48 with my guest Ryan Blake and Justice League Europe number 24 with my guest Paul Hicks. Now, let me break it down for you, folks. The comments on our website were crazy for this episode. Had 55 comments, 6,185 words just on the website alone. But the good news is I can spare you most of that uh, because as we get into it, the vast majority of comments on the website boiled down to basically three things. 
Hicks. The first point was pretty much just giving me heck for never seeing the movie Tremors, which, by the way, let it be known, I have now seen the movie Tremors. I'm officially part of the cult of Graboids. Uh, the second point most people made was about Paul Hicks's lewd comments during the last episode about the worms. And the third thing was... As bizarre as it sounds, was a massively long discussion about ice cream uh, available from a local Florida grocery store chain. What the what? I, I completely lost control of the comment thread there, folks, and I'm so sorry. All right, so let's get into the rest of the comments, if you will. So we heard from Professor Allen and the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He says, yes, Kirby, like Hoover, is also a vacuum cleaner company. Because last SU, we had drawn that comparison between the artists of the General Glory comic uh, with the last name, or maybe it was the writer. I can't remember exactly. Either way, the last name was Hoover, and uh, we were wondering if that was a parallel to Kirby. So yes, thank you, Professor Allen. And then Adam Ackerman from the Denmark Embassy also chimed in, saying, uh, maybe it's just me being from Ohio, but whenever I hear Kirby, the first thing I think of is the vacuum cleaner, even before the artist. Jim Kirby basically invented it there. All right. And we did get more comments on the Kirby vacuum throughout the uh, comment thread, so thank you to everyone. We're from Bucky749, a.k.a. the American Samurai. Bucky has her own YouTube channel, and uh, Bucky's been giving me status updates on them building their own JLI embassy. So here's status update number three. Uh, the building is up and Terra Man, the true cowboy, has been helping us. And then there's, uh, there's quite a bit of humor going back and forth there. It's great. Thank you, Bucky. Then uh, then Bucky poses the question, I was wondering if you've ever thought about covering one of the Dobie Gillis comics on one of your shows or reviewing the TV movie Bring Me the Head of Dobie Gillis. You know, Bucky, I've actually considered that before, specifically because, and this is a very roundabout, crazy description, but if you know your history on cartoons, the Scooby-Doo cartoon originally began life as a Dobie Gillis cartoon. Do your research. It's absolutely true. They were doing an animated version of Dobie Gillis. It didn't pan out. In order to salvage what they'd worked on, they just turned it into Scooby-Doo. They just added a dog. You know, Fred is Dobie. Uh, Velma is Thelma. Um, Shaggy is Maynard G. Krabs. So anyway, this goes on and on and on. And where I'm going with this is Shaggy was essentially inspired by Maynard G. Krebs in Dobie Gillis. Well, my name I picked up in high school is Shag. So that came from Scooby-Doo, which, as I said, is sort of a you know a descendant of Mater G. Krebs from Dobie Gillis. So I've always had a personal fascination with Dobie Gillis. Long story there. Terribly sorry. But yeah, I have thought about doing something about Dobie Gillis on an episode at some point. So great suggestion. They are from Captain Entropy. It says, I love Ryan's insights on General Glory as a character. I wouldn't be surprised if we heard similar opinions in the future, since we've got two episodes left in the saga, presumably with more fans of the original General Glory. Hmm, Captain Entropy. Could that possibly be foreshadowing? Hmm, only time will tell. Then it goes on to say, uh, the Hitler design and the paint job for the Uberbot. I think Mel Brooks said that at one point, after World War II, he decided to spend the rest of his life ridiculing Adolf Hitler. And that's why an actor portraying Hitler shows up in Blazing Saddles, a period western. I think the Uberbot is serving the same noble cause. Could very well be. And then Captain Entropy chimed in. I, I couldn't remember a word during the last episode. He chimed in with onomatopoeia. Thank you so much, Captain Entropy. I, for whatever reason, I can never remember that word. Then we're from Damien Drew A. Whiter from our England embassy. I have no idea who this guy is. I wish he'd stop bothering me. Anyway, he says, as ever, I love the podcast. It's great to hear everyone coming around to the General Glory story. I've always been in the minority that loved General Glory, and it's about time we grew the group. I wonder if the upcoming breakdowns will turn out to be better than I remember. You know, Damien, I am also wondering how I'm going to feel about breakdowns, considering reevaluating General Glory has given me a lot of uh, warm and fuzzies. Maybe I will enjoy breakdowns more. 
Then we heard from Jeff R. He says, okay, so you talked about how this story would have been done a few years later. But what's more telling is how it was done five years earlier. Because General Glory isn't just Captain America crossed with Captain Marvel. He's Captain America also crossed with Captain Marvel by way of Miracle Man. The echoes are all over the place. From the beginning with the old man straining to remember his magic words to the bits coming up. And that's probably part of why it was ill-received, inviting comparison with a truly legendary story. Hmm, that's an interesting thought, Jeff. I hadn't thought about that. I, I'm a massive fan of Miracle Man, uh, the Alan Moore Miracle Man, and then the Neil Gaiman stuff. So I wonder if that was sort of uh, playing in the back of our heads back then. Hmm. Uh, then Jeff goes on to say, as far as the storyline being too long, and for filling out the, quote, last story before the endgame position, including grabbing issue 50, uh, as a fan, I would have much rather had a shorter General Glory story and a classic legacy villain for the big 5 that's a fair opinion, Jeff. Uh, I could see that. Again, I'm enjoying the General Glory story, but I could see why a uh, classic villain for issue 50 would have also been a real big win. Then we heard from Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, the Golden Age section? Damn! That was some carefully crafted parody homage. And speaking of which, I believe that is one of the reasons the new take on the General Glory saga has shifted the original point of view. We can now sit more comfortably with that balance. And back then, it was a little too early in the extreme era to really cherish the backwards take. Also, agreement on the art. Linda's drawing civilians really is a highlight. Well, civilians as in not metahuman, since she has to draw plenty of military people and paraphernalia, and it shines through it all. Yeah, Gus, I mean, Linda's artwork, I'm absolutely in love with it. I, I wish we'd gotten to see more of her stuff. They were from Mark Baker Wright from the Not Your Father's Autobot podcast in Black Rock's Toy Box. Mark writes, history was made. Shag was out-irredeemed by Paul Hicks. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I was, Mark. They were from Symbol Pending for our UK embassy. They do the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. They said they're dipping in and out along with the podcast and the comics, and I finally caved on getting the Omnibuy. Ooh, all right. General Glory's fine, but I'm collecting this monthly for my JSA favorites, and I've been a little miffed at how little they get to do. Yeah, we're not seeing a ton coming out of the JSA, folks, and uh, that's unfortunate. Power Girl deserves a better spotlight. I wish I had an answer for you uh, or could tell you that was coming up, but uh, I don't know that it's going to. I, I still feel like she's a very, very important part of the team, and she's added a lot to the Just League Europe history, but I don't know that she's been treated as well either. Then uh, Symbol Penny goes on to say, the worms of Just League Europe probably wouldn't balls things up too much as London is awash with tunnels throughout the city, what with the underground and all that. Though those worms would have been handy for finishing up the Channel Tunnel, so poor Catherine could pop back to Paris more often. <laughs> yeah, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? Then heard from Chris Franklin for the Firewater Podcast Network. He's currently working on his House of Franklin Stein for this year. He also does the JLU Cast Podcast and much more. Chris says, no offense to Ryan or Shag. Well, maybe offense to Shag. But despite the fact that this story, in hindsight, sounds fun and is well-drawn and presented, it still feels out of place in this title, in my opinion. As a one-off issue, sure. It's a five-part storyline. I think this is where they lost me. I'm willing to go back and reread them at the end of your coverage to see if I still feel the same way. You know, that's pretty much just copy-paste for what uh, Chris has said about all five issues of this General Glory saga. He, he just, Chris hates good things. Uh, anyway, then Chris goes on to say, as for the JLE issue itself, yeah, the giant worms farting out Metamorpho? I guess Paul was too preoccupied with penile humor to note the obvious, quote, passing gas joke. So Rex can, you know, become gas. <laughs> That's a great one, Chris. That's a very much a dad joke. I love it. Then we're from Doug Adamson from our Scottish Embassy. He's been going through our back catalog, and in just a few months, he's gone from the very first episode all the way to episode 
episode 36. He is rapidly catching up uh, on the modern day. That is amazing. Then Doug's discussion uh, really deviates into comic book conventions around the United States. And then this is where it happens. We get into this bizarre conversation about grocery stores in Florida, specifically singing the praises of Publix ice cream, which is utterly bizarre for me because I used to work at Publix and stock the ice cream. So crazy small world. But um, I think I just saved you about uh, 86% of the comments right there. All right. Jumping past all of that. Uh, Mike Dynas writes in from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, uh, regarding Just League America, I agree with Shag. Linda Medley's art is so good by this point. She's grown so much since the first few issues she did. And I know I've mentioned it before, but she definitely knows how to make the characters act with great facial expressions and poses. I mean, it's not hard to make it look fantastic when you draw a Hitler bot getting its arm ripped off. Uh, I don't know who's in charge of designing Das Uberbot, but I love that they made the mustache port on his head. Uh, what a completely useless and hilarious design. I know. I love it. I love it. Then in Just League Europe, he says, well, this issue had a lot more innuendo than I was expecting. Now, maybe it's just Paul, but now I can't unsee all the phallic images. I mean, it's hard not to see it. Uh, I'm going to need a stiff drink or just some time by myself to play with my dinky cars. There is a vast deference between what you see and what it means. And after all those puns, I'm tuckered. Oh my gosh, Mike. Yeah, Mike just gave Paul a run for his money for uh, inappropriate comments. Thanks so much for that. <laughs> Then we heard from Doug Van Diver, and uh, he followed up on my comment that uh, I had finally seen Tremors. So he says, yeah, guys, just because Rob waxed lyrical about Parts the Clonus Horror on a recent JLU cast doesn't mean I'm going to rush to watch Parts the Clonus Horror. I'm not that suggestible as a listener, but I might be the kind of listener who decides that he didn't quite hear correctly what movie Paul was talking about. So now I can report that the film, quote, Kathy Smith, Tummy Tremors, quote, was well worth my time. I <laughs> uh, love it, Doug. Love it. Your movie selections are so good, they gave me tremors. Then we heard from Siskoid from our Canadian embassy. He's with the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as FW Team Up, Hero Points, and more. Siskoid says, Now I can see why Ryan asked me how to get on JLI all those years ago. Well worth the wait. <laughs> then we're from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, and Batgirl Hunters Podcast. Tim says, I have extra affection for Paris Cullen's part of the issue because he really can channel some Kirby energy, faces, and poses in his art. His runs on New Gods and Forever People, homage, Kirby style so well. Having him draw General Glory's origin was pitch perfect. And he says about the JSA and General Glory, let's also remember that from the Beef Eater issue, he claimed his father teamed up with General Glory in World War II. It was discounted at the time with a familiar, General Glory's just a comic book character. Put a pin in that and let's see if that gets revisited. Ah, thank you, Tim. Now see, Tim remembers in clear detail everything coming up in the JLI, so that is uh, what we call foreshadowing in the business, folks. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald. Uh, Liz has a lot to say, but some of what Liz has to say is the giant Hitler robot's pretty funny. Then Liz drops a knowledge bomb and points out that, you know, the bad guy is Schmidt in these stories, right? And it's a kind of a Captain America pastiche. Well, the Red Skull's real name in Marvel Comics is Johann Schmidt. Ah! Wow, I totally did not see that. So great call, Liz. Then uh, regarding Just League Europe, Liz points out that the main bad guy's in purple robes and all of his minions are in green robes. All I can think of is that one Scooby-Doo episode with the ice cream ghost. <laughs> uh, and then Liz says, uh, you know, the villain's decent enough, but the giant worms is your only attack in a comic? Uh, they point out that it really doesn't work and that a bunch of wacky cultists just end up looking like Scooby-Doo villains. Controlling a bunch of giant worms with a tuning fork? I really can't see the Avengers going up against this threat. 
However, I can see it happening in the current Justice League. This is about the only comic where it would work. Yeah, you make a good point, Liz. Uh, and then Liz posted the link to the Godzilla cartoon opening. Remember in the last episode, I, I sang a little bit of the Godzilla cartoon opening because of the whole Up From The Depths line, so thank you for sharing that, Liz. They were from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy and the Too Dangerous For Girl blog. Martin says, Justice League America number 48 was a wonderful issue. I'm so glad you've come around to the Linda Medley pencil shag. I wish she'd been given a longer run. Ah, totally agree with you, Martin. And then Martin says, uh, you weren't kidding about the Crimson Fox torture scene being strong. It was hard to look at. Having said that, the silhouette panel is terrific. That single blob of blue, very effective in making the figures pop. Then we're from John Wilson from John Reads Comics. You know, John has also been going through our back catalog for months, and he's all caught up. Congratulations. Way to go, John. Welcome to the present. Uh, John also posted a panel from the Time and Time Again saga from Superman, where Dan Jurgens shared that Booster Gold deactivated Skeets because he didn't really fit into the league. So Guy Gardner would have made a toaster out of him. Ah, so there we go. We got some answers as to what happened to Skeets. Then we heard from a few other people, including uh, Warsaw Cubicle, and then our buddy Sean Ross from the NeverEnding Reading Pile. Both of them commented on Paul Hicks' description of Captain Adam as, quote, a condom full of walnuts. Uh, yeah, so that is become like an earworm for a lot of folks, and I can't unhear it. Thank you so much, Paul, for myself and the rest of us. All right, folks, so this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timelines. We're talking about Facebook and Twitter. I know it is a long list of names, everybody, but these folks showed their support and helped promote the show, and, you know, I'd like to ask if you would too, please. So uh, I want to be sure to recognize all these people, and our community of friends is growing, guys. This time we got over 80 names. Oh, my gosh. So apparently all you got to do is uh, mention Tremors, and you get a lot of recognition. So here is everyone who helped promote the last couple episodes by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. So our thanks go to Adamson's Attic, Al Girding, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold Facebook page, Chris Field of Otherworst Games, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Cult Zone The Real, Damian Drew A. Whiter, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Days of High Adventure podcast, Denim Jedi, Digest Cast, Doug Adamson, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Sports Levine, Fan Films Friday podcast, Frederica Hernandez, For All Mankind Super Friends podcast, Geek Hut, Geek to Me Radio, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Hoover Jeremiah, Jake Muir, James Enstall, Jeff Weinberg, Johan Balasura, John Coos, John Wilson, Jonathan Dye, Justice Trek, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Liz Ann Oswald, Mark's Mess Podcast, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthew Cody, Max Traver, Maz Inger 1978, MetaHuman 159 Streaming Addict 2022. I wonder if that's on his birth certificate. Hmm. Uh, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dinas, Mike Jameson, Mountain Comics, Nicholas Alheim, Nuno Duarte, Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Patrick's Tactics and Tutorials, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly, Roger Preeb, Ryan Blake, Scott X, Sean McLaughlin, Sean Ross, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Stephen or Else, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, The Tremor Saga, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Treasury Comics, Trent Lewis, Wacky Bronze Silver Comic Book Villains, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warsaw Cubicle, Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey RPG Podcast, Right On Network, and Zek Cap Boots. Woof, wow, what a list. 
Folks, thank you so much for all your support of the JLI podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. Your feedback, as always, is such a critical part of making the show a success. And the community of JLI fans we've built together is absolutely wonderful. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably Ryan or Paul's fault. Let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming. Again, our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there. That's where most of the activity is. You can find us on Facebook as uh, facebook.com slash JLI podcast or on Twitter as JLI podcast. And our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Ryan Blake and Paul Hicks for appearing in the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Damien and Shotgun together in the same embassy. is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived... Worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at com. All right, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Damien and Shotgun together for us. Damien, man, this has been an absolute blast. I've been waiting for years for us to have a reason to chat, and I'm so glad we had a chance to do this. Would you please tell the listeners where they can find more of you on the internets? Well, the first thing I would recommend everyone comes to, oh, thank you very much for being such a gracious host, Shag, I should say, um, is my blogspot, shouldilovethis.blogspot.com. There is someone still on blogspot, and it means <laughs> it's not very good at technology. And that's got all the links of the podcast that me and Irigel do. We're looking at all my favorite comics from back in the day. Really recommend that people listen to it. We don't have a lot of listeners, but we're fun, and we want more people, and we like you. And if you want to talk to me on on Twitter, I'm on there. I'm at Whiter Trash, which is my surname <laughs> Whiter with trash on the end. <laughs> I can't help myself being a bit trashy. But yeah, please come and see us. And obviously, interact with me on the comment thread for the JLI podcast and particularly Who's Who, which is my favorite bit. I mean, you can't be a guest on Who's Who, so this is the second best. But <laughs> the favorite thing that you do is the Who's Who podcast. It is the best podcast I know, and I just love it. So, you know, get talking on there. See if you can write as much as me. <laughs> you know, and I will respond to other people as well, like I always do. The Who's Who podcast is an absolute joy. We just, we have so little left to cover that we're dragging it out for years intentionally because we just, we don't want it to end is what it is. We love it so much much. 
I know. Oh. It's just so wonderful, though. And, you know, the community that you guys created through Fire and Water is just, it's just wonderful to be a part of it. People are so friendly and so nice, you know, and almost everyone I'm friends with on Twitter is through that, you know, through oh. you guys and you're creating a community. So thank you. Don't thank me. Thank everyone. It's all of us together. Yeah. I mean, and even though it's called Fire and Water, it really grew out of who's who. It really mm. did. That's where we met everyone and all the communication back and forth and became friends with everybody. And it's, mm. we're just lucky that we happen to pick a comic that everyone loved. It's it's not us. It's everyone collectively that has done this. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for being here, Damon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now, Shotgun, thank you so much for appearing on the show. This has been an absolute blast. I really enjoyed going through this with someone who's you know not familiar with the Justice League. This has been absolutely great. I think your French-speaking skills were critical, absolutely critical in understanding this dialogue, uh, and your expertise in worms as well was appreciated. So if you would, please tell the folks at home where they can find you on the internet. So on FW Podcast, I am a part of the Sitscord crew, one of the Canadian ladies in the Who Hot Moo or Not <laughs> podcast. We love doing this. For most of us, it's one of our happy place. So we want people to keep listening so we can keep, you know, not wasting our time and we're doing it so people enjoy it. Uh, so <laughs> go give it a listen if you haven't before. And listener's discretion is advised. But this is this is where you can find me. Uh, folks, that show, as it was originally described, is the podcast you didn't know you needed or wanted for that matter, but you absolutely have to have. It is unbelievably hysterical. You're dealing with a whole crew of professional improv comedians going through and just making absolute fun of everything we loved in our childhood of these superheroes. It is a hoot. It is so much fun. You better listen with the headphones on at work because it gets it gets pretty pretty mature pretty quick. But and make uh, sure not to drink while facing your computer. We've had close <laughs> calls before. Yes. But yeah, we, we've been told many a time that we've destroyed completely what people were thinking about their favorite heroes, that yes. they will never be able to see them the same anymore. If you like a hero with bucket boots, uh, go in with a brace yourself. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again, Shagan. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you being on the show. It was a pleasure. So if you ever needed me for anything else, any other podcast, it would be my pleasure to be a guest of yours again. Be careful. I I will take you up on that. (laughs) I I need to at least catch up a little to Amelie. (laughs) Well, folks, that is going to do it. Now, come back next month when you're going to get two, two episodes, folks. That's assuming everything comes together as planned. First thing is you'll hear one episode covering the role-playing game module from Mayfair Games that features the Justice League International. The, the module is called When a Stranger Calls. Then after that, you'll get another episode, like usual, covering Justice League America number 50 and Justice League Europe number 26. And we'll have more guest hosts to help me cover those episodes. Now, who are they going to be? People, you know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. But if I'm talking about a role-playing adventure module, you can kind of guess who one of the guests will probably be. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Damien. And I'm Shotgun. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?